February 4th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 194 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is drummer, multi-instrumentalist, composer, improviser, archivist, label honcho, record producer, and a whole lot more, Weasel Walter. Let's have a listen. Weasel makes incredibly intense music, and uh, today's a good one. Today on the show, Weasel Walter. Before we get into it, uh, did you guys like that mixtape last week? I put up, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, every eight weeks uh, I'm skipping a Monday, and I decided last week to, instead of just leaving a blank space, put up a mixtape, uh, which was actually a lot of fun to make. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. If you're enjoying this show, I would once again like to remind you that uh, if you're enjoying the show and you want to help out uh, to keep it going, keep it going healthy, keep it going strong, please visit the Patreon page for the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Do that. Go there. Become a monthly donor at any level. And as a way of saying thanks, you will have access to the entire archive of the show which at this point is close to 100 episodes. The most recent 100 episodes will always be available for free in iTunes. Um, But stuff before that, the first 94, 95 shows, those are only in the archive. So become a Patreon donor, and then you can have access to that archive. A lot of talk. There's a lot of stuff in there. And uh, it's a a good way to, to help out, and I certainly appreciate it if you do. The other thing you can do if you want to be helpful, go to iTunes and rate and review and subscribe to the show. Those things are very helpful. That that helps uh, give the show greater visibility. You know, iTunes, uh, from my perspective, especially the podcast section of it, is kind of like a a giant fucking trash heap. So figuring out a way to to pop out amid all the trash uh, is, is important. So do that. Do both those things. All right, today on the show, Weasel Walter. I imagine that a lot of you will not need an introduction um, or, or too much of an introduction to Weasel Walter. Uh, I say that because with the exception of John Zorn, since starting this podcast in 2013, uh, more requests have come in for, for Weasel Walter to be on the show than anyone else. Uh, actually, I take that back. More like suggestions. Um, people telling me I should have him on. And... First things first, whenever someone tells me that I should do something, that's probably the quickest way to ensure that I won't do it. I don't know if it's, uh, my, you know, I'm a Taurus, as is Weasel, as we found out on the, in our conversation today. I don't know if it's that stubbornness, but when someone tells me I should do something or I have to do something, I will tend to not do it. You know, something that has been 
almost 100% consistent and true uh, in, in my time of doing this podcast is when I talk to people who I don't know, uh, or I don't really know or don't know at all, people who I have uh, uh, an idea of who they are, I, I'm almost always uh, proven wrong for the better. And something that Weasel and I talk a lot about today, um, and Weasel tells me about, is is coming to terms uh, with reconciling and accepting uh, past behavior and the consequences, the results of, of engaging in certain behaviors. And this is the first time that Weasel and I ever, you know, talked at any length. We had uh, met a few times over the years, spoken for a few minutes. And, you know, to be completely honest, I was always kind of turned off by Weasel's strong personality. Um, I thought he was really in- uh, aggressive and intense, um, kind of condescending. Uh, it, and I, I, I wasn't into it. That being said, I've always looked at Weasel and, and what he does and, and his commitment to his work and been really impressed by it. Uh, and, and checking out interviews with him, listening to his stuff, um, and, but also having a lot of people in common, people that I'm very close to that Weasel's also very close to. I, I, I knew that under under what I perceived as being, you know, an aggressive kind of know-it-all attitude, that there was something very uh, familiar to me, something, a commonality, let's say. I don't think I'm talking out of turn here. In my own life, uh, I, I, and, you know, we talk about it. We talk about it today. Uh, I've, I've burnt some bridges that if I could go back in time, I would unburn. Uh, a lot of those bridges that I burned uh, was me having a big mouth, me having a chip on my shoulder, me feeling like certain people had things that they didn't deserve that maybe I did. You know, resentfulness. I, I knew that if I talked to Weasel that I my, my, my preconception of him would be proven wrong, and it was. Weasel is an intense guy, uh, but he is intensely creative. He's intensely curious. Uh, he has a lot of energy, and, and from what I can tell, he uses that energy to create a lot of work. Weasel is incredibly prolific. Uh, I mean, I could spend an hour just talking about all of his different projects, um, and we talk about, I think, uh, a thousandth of it on the show today. Uh, but I'll just say this. Weasel's uh, uh, main project for a number of years was, you know, a pretty seminal underground band called the Flying Luttenbachers. I'm sure many of you listening to this are, are well familiar with that. And after several years of, uh, of, of inactivity, Weasel has brought back the Flying Luttenbachers with a new lineup. The band has always changed. Uh, there's always been personnel changes uh, throughout the history of the band, but Flying Lutenbachers is back. Tim Dahl on bass, Brandon Seabrook on guitar, Matt Nelson on sax, Weasel Walter on drums. They've got a new record coming out in just a couple of weeks on Weasel's label, Ugg Explode. It's called Shattered Dimensions. They're going to Europe in April. They're going to be playing shows in London, Hamburg, Amsterdam, Antwerp, uh, a number of shows. And if you're in Europe and you're curious uh, about what Weasel's been up to, go check them out. 
Weasel Walter's a good dude. And he has a huge amount of, of knowledge and information uh, that that he has stored over the years. Uh, you know, like I said, incredibly prolific musician, um, but a real scholar, uh, uh, specifically when it comes to no wave music, loft jazz. I mean, this guy is really like an oracle of all this stuff and this history. If you want to find out more about Weasel, go to nowave.pair. Dot com. That's N-O-W-A-V-E dot P-A-I-R dot com. Check them out. Um, like I said, I imagine that many of you are already well familiar with Weasel. Uh, so I think let's just get into the conversation. Here's my talk with Weasel Walter. <laughs> But I think he got he, he he sussed out the music thing and was like, "Oh, I see where this is going." Oh, you mean like yeah? He, he moved on dot org. He's like, like ah, I might want to make a dollar, so you know, I'm not, I'll do this for fun. That's my advice to young musicians: <laughs> play music for fun. When it's not fun, you should do something else. It'll make your life a lot easier. It's so funny. I have. I mean, I'm like, cheers, cheers, That's beers, to you. beers uh, to you. I'm generally like a pretty panicky person anyway. I woke up in the middle of like about five o'clock this morning, like with this hard like like stop where I said, "Oh my god, everything I've ever considered to be an achievement is like objectively a failure." Oh, <laughs> don't, don't I mean, don't you think life is just a series of failures, anyways? I mean, I think most people, even the most successful Machiavellian people, will have to admit that most of their efforts were were failures until they weren't. Right, but I, I mean, like. I've, as someone who, you know, has gone through some pretty rough periods, like going way back to early childhood, I, I developed this thing as a kid. I started yeah. doing this where, like, when I really like, felt like I was at the bottom, I would say, all right, well, let me look at the last year, the last month. Like, what did I do? And, you know, so as an adult, it'll be like, all right, well, I did that tour. I made that record. Da, 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 da. But now I realize, like, if I went to anyone who, like, didn't know or didn't give a fuck about this music, who was just leading, like, a successful life, and yeah. I was like, well, I made this record that I only lost 1500 bucks on. I did this tour where, like, I got a hotel half the time. <laughs> They'd be like, what's wrong with you? But, you know, when you're, you get to be so good at failing, you kind of have to own it at some point. And yeah. I feel like I've done that. Like, to me, failure isn't almost a bad word at this point. It's like you took the chance to do something. That's, you know, that's the beauty of life. If we're in a position to even take these chances, we're kind of lucky. Right. Because a lot of people don't really... They can't even take the risks that some musicians take. I mean, the risks I've taken are stupid, you know, sure. in many cases. Sure, sure, They're sure, outright sure. just dumb decisions, and people have told me such. Right. But, you know, being so idealistic about <laughs> things the way I am, I just, you know, doody-doody-doo. I mean, I work, uh, you know, I I've, I do several day job type things, and, mm -hmm. like, at one of my jobs, there's a lot of uh, Mexican and Guatemalan migrant workers. Mm-hmm. And I don't even talk to them about like the music and what I do outside of there because I just know they would be like, "You you do what with your American freedom?" <laughs> you know, like why? You read comic books for a living? You know, like okay, good luck to you. <laughs> well, you know the 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 futility of art is is you know it's as futile as many things that other people have and choose to do with their lives. So I mean, once again, it's like own your failure, own the yeah. futility, own yeah, the yeah, pointlessness. Yeah, yeah. I mean. It's structuralism to me. The reason why I'm involved in music is because I love structure and hierarchies and all this stuff, and uh -huh. I get to play with it. And 
it's just an intellectual thing, you know? I mean, I don't see it... I mean, You're talking about the actual process yeah, of creating work. I don't see work. it. It's like people who geek out on chess or something. Yeah, know? totally. Totally. I always, like, you know, my favorite aspect of music making, and I've said this a thousand times, I know people are sick of hearing it, but, like, my favorite aspect of music making is being, in fr like, mixing records, making mm -hmm. records. And I don't see it being any different than dudes that come home crack open a beer and go out to the fucking garage to work on whatever they're tinkering with well people when they meet me and they don't really know what i do you know especially people who aren't really musically inclined they're sort of like what do you play and it's like well i can manipulate any kind of tool to you're talking about when stuff. you have to like when you're in a social situation where yeah like i just meet some random person right. or or it's maybe a person who's just has no connection to the music thing they just don't give a shit right. at all and they, they're trying to parse it and they're like what do you play and i'm kind of like well, I don't know. I play some stuff, but they're just tools. It's like banging, you know, yeah. using... St I, I like primitive tools. I like to bang things. Yeah, you're a drummer. <laughs> well, but I also, you know, I play other stuff. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, you know, I've, I put in time on a lot of different instruments sure. to whatever degrees. Um, but they're just tools to me, the same way that uh, sitting and mixing all day is a tool. Yeah. It's like a way, another instrument. So... It's not trying to be pretentious to someone, but it's like, well, I play the drums and I play the guitar, but that, do I? Do I even care about that? That's not the point. So I had this thing <laughs> with a, a friend of mine the other night where, um, because I, you know, man, I'm, I've always been like kind of socially awkward and shy and, and when people... I can't tell. <laughs> but when people say, well, what do you do? It's like, I take that question very seriously. Mm -hmm. And it, to me, it's sort of like, well, what are you really asking? You're asking like, how do I earn a living? How do I, you know, any of those questions... Well, I got all kinds of crazy answers for that. <laughs> well, sure. Once they want to know, I mean, if they want to know, I'm a TMI kind of guy. I don't know if you've sussed that out. Probably <laughs> at this point, you probably already have. Well, the thing is, I realized, though, that I, I, and this happened the other night, where, like, I give, I often don't give people the benefit of the doubt that they might be totally open or have more of a, a, a cultural awareness than I would think. And I, I was hanging out with a friend of mine in a bar. And we came, I'm just going to push this a little closer to you. Mm. We came across my friend Alejandro. Yeah. Who, if you would just look at him, like you would make some assumptions about him. And he asked my friend about what kind of music he makes. And my friend was like, well, you know, I play guitar. It's kind of like, you know, a rock drum thing, you know. And the thing about Alejandro is that he literally has designed personal home stereo systems for Keith Richards. He has opened like three restaurants. He, you know, went to MIT when he was 16. Like, this is a guy that grasps concepts that like I'll never be able to grasp. Mm -hmm. And it was just a reminder. The only reason I bring this up is it was a reminder to me that like, I don't know if I do myself any favors by assuming that their people are going to judge me or, or be critical or dismissive. Clearly, a lot of different people think I'm a lot of different things from genius to totally full of shit. Right. And I accept that because right. I put out a lot of mixed signals and energy and a lot of chaos and bluster and blah, you know, I, I put out a lot of energy into the world. And as I get older, I try to be more constructive with it. Uh -huh. When I was younger, I was really feral and I didn't understand the cause and effect of you mean like, like going up and talking shit to someone's face for no yeah. reason because it f felt hilarious or yeah. I was angry or something like that. So, uh, I don't know. I, I have like a reputation that precedes me in some ways and I and I have to sort of own that as well. You know, it's, it's like another thing where, you know, I've done and said a lot of things that are controversial to some people and made them think certain things about sure. me through my career and I, in a weird way, I can own that but also, 
you know. Do you regret that? Um, I don't know if regret is the right word, right. but I think things would have turned out for me differently if I had been more socially aware when I was a young man and I spent a lot of time burning a lot of bridges and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming I know it would that. be different, but my attitude is I am who I am now and I'm like, you know, I try to be considerate of people and I try to be a straight talker and I kind of, you know. Is this a more recent uh, phenomenon? Yeah. yeah. Is it related to age, related to... I think it's... um. I've had a pretty intense life, yeah. and I think um, my interactions with people, I, I think I've, I've come to certain conclusions that I didn't really, that I was, wow, this is really complicated. I'm like shrinking myself on on, on, oh, on oh, mic yeah, right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with that, but um, to someone who doesn't know anything about me, they're just going to be like, whoa, this guy's already in outer space. But um, I think I was really feral when I was young, Yeah, and I didn't really understand the, the cause and effect of acting certain ways and saying certain things like i always when yeah, i was you really like young i thought i was like the rebel and sure. my truth was the only truth and anyone who didn't agree with it sucked and here's why and blah 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 and now i'm just like well everybody does their own shit and i do my own shit i don't expect anyone to like it those who do hats off to you i'm glad but like you know everyone's just trying to do their stuff yeah and it's not my job to like be like, huh, your stuff stinks. You're the worst. You know, it's just like I do my. Now I mind my own business and I do my stuff. And people who like it like it. People who don't, eh, it's to be expected. Yeah, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. I mean, yeah. I've certainly burnt, and it's, it's something I've been thinking about lately. I've burned some bridges, and uh, I don't harp on it. Why did we do that, though? That's the question. I mean, I could. I mean, I could, like, like here's like a really specific example. Is I had a, a friend who sort of adopted. Like one day, this person made me their best friend. Okay. This is another musician who is a very well connected musician. Okay. And they burned me out. They really uh, didn't show a lot of consider consideration for me as a friend. They, I mean, they were objectively a bad friend. Okay. And on some pretty questionable advice, I, I use I, well the, the term that people now use. I ghosted them. I stopped returning their calls. I cut them out. You know, I said fuck that. And I don't now. And this is years ago. I don't give you know if I'm, I've said hi to that person in public, they don't even acknowledge me. Mm -hmm. But I do. Like I feel like like you said a second ago that had I handled that perhaps a little more, um, you know, carefully. Maybe more opportunities would be available to me because this person is like runs in a lot of circles where decisions get made on what opportunities yeah. find their way to people. Uh, you know, what I can say about it is looking back on my life, you know, it's it's some real Freudian shit. Sure. It's like I came from a working class. So you're, wait, wait, sorry. No, this is a yeah. good point. So you're from like Southern Illinois? I'm from Rockford, Illinois. Is that I'm, I'm ignorant? It's it's uh, the second alternately second third largest city. It's like 150 thousand. It's by the Wisconsin border. Okay, okay. It's the home of Cheap Trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> B and C list comedians like Natasha Leggero and Eli I just, Braden. I just saw Natasha Leggero play like two weeks ago. Hilarious. I was kind of a roommate with her for a minute. <laughs> she was fucking funny. Went to school her. together. Where she's she's actually funnier off camera. <laughs> well, Here's the thing, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like, she did this joke, she just had a kid, and her stand-up isn't like that hacky, like, oh, now I've got a kid, I can't sleep, or whatever, she just doesn't seem to give a shit, and she was talking about millennials, and she refers to millennials as interns. She's cute, I regret not dating her back in high school, I'll be blunt, you know, like, I could've, and I don't know what my problem was, I was probably just a 
too much of a dork or well, something. Actually, so the well, set she was that, a dork too. But I mean. the set I saw her do a couple weeks ago, <laughs> she talked about the town she grew up in. Oh yeah, and how sort of like rednecky it is. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm working class. I mean, my dad right. was a high school dropout firefighter who hung drywall and painted. And my mom was a housewife, and, and a they were secretary. native to the area. Um, ish. Yeah. 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 I mean, my family, most of them are still there. Yeah. I couldn't wait to get the fuck out. But you're what, a second, <laughs> third generation Rockvillian? Well, let's see. Um, yeah, something like that. I mean, I also important to my story is that most of the men on my dad's side fought in wars. They were grunts who fought in wars. Your dad was in them? Yes. So, and World War II, World War One, uh-huh. on down the line. My, my great, great, my great grandfather was a Prussian soldier in World War One. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have all this, like, war and shit in my psyche. That's why my music uh, is the way it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in intergenerational uh, drama. <sighs> Man, as I get older, I just see, whoa, you know, how genetically things like trauma and stuff like that is passed down through everybody. Yeah. It's part of your psyche. It's part of your DNA. It's like, it's you can't blame anyone for it. It's no. just your story. It's your bloodline, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have a very warlike bloodline, and it's um, I'm probably the the most avant garde member of my lineage so far. I mean, in seemingly, terms of, if they're like, <laughs> yeah, I got the mutant gene. So, I mean, you know, there's. It sounds like I mean, certainly there's been an idea in America, and it kind of like we're the first generation to not deal with this. But like, you go to you grow up, you go to war, you come back, start a family, and it's not really like that outrageous of an idea. That was the thing. Well, I went out and I fought some kind of aesthetic war where I was taking no prisoners. Wait, and... so wait, what did your dad do for a living? <sighs> well, he was a he was a firefighter. You know, sort of like a low rank. He 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 retired as a firefighter, but he was like he didn't really have an education, so he couldn't really be an officer or anything. He was kind of like the the legacy grunt. You know, right. hook and ladder. He did. He was a paramedic for a little he's while. Still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. Yeah, he's in his seventies. He um. You know, and he hung drywall on the side and did painting and stuff like that. You know, we just, he was lower middle class stuff to get by. Sure, sure. I had a pretty humble upbringing. Brothers and sisters? I have a younger sister, yeah. yeah. Two years younger. And yeah, she's yeah. normal. <laughs> <laughs> Does she still live in Rockville? Yeah, in Rockford. Rockford, yeah. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. That's okay. Sorry. Home of Cheap Trick, very important. Don't Wait, go back to but Rockville. Where, where was uh, Biz Biter, Bix Biter be from? Bix Good Biter question. Bite. Illinois, but I don't know where. I feel it. Okay. Anyway, could be, could be. I feel like it's it's. I'm just thinking back to like that Ken Burns jazz documentary. Well, and also when I was a kid, there was there was a um, there was an ice cream parlor that was old timey that was sort of had sort of uh, old newspapers from yeah. the, the early of early 20th century decor, and I'm pretty sure that must have been front and center at yeah, this yeah, ice yeah. cream place that I used to eat at when I was a kid. Yeah, for what it's worth. But so. <laughs> Uh, when did you start playing music? Really early. Your choice. Oh my God. I mean, I just saw stuff. I, I listened to the radio all the time and mm-hmm. I saw stuff on TV and I was just like, that's awesome. I want to do this. And I, it took me a while to figure out how to do it. Like I had the plastic kiss guitar when I was seven or whatever. Yeah. And I remember my early efforts of trying to notate and I knew nothing. And this thing wasn't in any tuning. It was an actual any... guitar with strings. It was like a plastic sure. guitar that was about two and a half feet long. Right. Plastic strings. 
no intonation, no tuning. I mean, I might as well have been playing like some it was for rare pictures. ethnic instrument, you know? I mean, it really couldn't, you couldn't do anything tonal on it. Right. And I was so desperate to be like, well, I, if I'm going to make a song, I have to remember something. So, But I don't know anything about notation. Was there anyone in your life who was there to say like, hey, here's like a C major chord? No. Or you need to learn what no. intervals are? No. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. So, I mean... Then I moved up to like an acoustic guitar, and then you know by the time when I was eleven, a lot of important things hit, which was I sort of discovered punk rock and sort of the underground music potential, like non radio, non mainstream uh -huh. stuff. Did you enjoy what was on the radio up until that point? Yeah, and I still do. I'm I'm more into Foreigner now than I probably was back then. <laughs> like I actually analytically listened to Foreigner, and and I their production and the structural things and the harmonic things. And I just, I, I like that shit. I'm yeah. really, I'm a dyed in wool classic rock. That stuff gets you. Yeah. Did you go through a period of saying, fuck that? That's no, really? No, I always owned it because I thought it was really trashy. I mean, I've always been kind of a trashy. dick and I've always owned my kind of white trash thing because <laughs> I think it's fun. I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, I'm really into Zanakis and stuff like that, yeah. but I'm I'm really into like Journey, Boston, Foreigner, and all that stuff. I mean, it's not like that's all I listen to, but I I have a love for it, and anyone who knows me knows that I really I own that stuff, and I, I it's, it's so part funny. of who I am. Like I grew up, you know, as we established out there, you know, I'm you know eight years younger than you, mm -hmm. uh, but I have an older sister, you know, six years older, and yeah, I, I we grew up dirt poor, dirt yeah. fucking poor, in the middle of nowhere. But as a kid, I, it took me a while to realize that I hated music growing up mm. because it sounded like that. It sounded like Journey. It sounded like Eye of the Tiger. It sounded like the music that like people that weren't like me liked. And yeah. it wasn't until I think... You know, I think I heard like um, Nat King Cole. Mm -hmm. My grandfather listening to it. I was like, oh, I kind of like that, you know? I hated music. I, You know, I, I started out with Kiss. That was the first band I liked. And yeah. honestly, in retrospect, Kiss are basically a punk rock band about blowjobs. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're basically just like the worst, like hairy ball, kind of sweaty. They're, they're idiots. They're, they're fucking, fucking gross. Yeah, they're morons. But yeah. I kind of like it as as stupidity. Like I like the mass stupidity on on a huge scale. Like it's it's kind of like. I mean, Gene Simmons is Donald Trump. They're the same thing. A terrible person. Yeah, they're the horrible. same thing. He cares not about any of us. I mean, he they're would. Filth. He would he would execute the entire world for uh, for a dollar. I mean, he yeah. does not care. He's a terrible person, but there was something about that marketing is so weird. And I mean, Kiss is very theatrical. They were well. It was basically like punk rock played by macho superheroes, you right. know, like misogynist superheroes. <laughs> I mean, and it's kind of ludicrous for what it is. But you know, I don't spend a lot of time on Kiss these days. But it's. You know, to me, it was I liked the aggression of it, and I liked the showiness and yeah. the sort of black and silver and red kind of thing. Sure. And, but you know, by by the time I was like in my early teens, I was really affected by punk because, especially seventies kind of like British yeah. punk, because I liked the way it looked and uh, I liked the way it sounded, and I liked that it w took things a little further. So. Being a music dork, you know, I was a kid who used to copy down the names of like band members in a notebook and mm -hmm. all their albums and what dates. It came. I have, I have that stuff in my parents. You still house. have it? Oh yeah, I can't find it, but I do have those, and they're very extensive, and I'm killing to find those. Yeah. Things. But you know, I would do my music research because I was really into music, and my parents were like, "Uh oh, you know, he's into music." So I, I took. I mean, what would they have hoped? I don't think they. 
I don't think they had any design for me. I think they just instinctually could tell. They're like, oh, God, this is no way to make a living. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Which now it's like, they're right, but that's not why I did it. You know? Right. It, that wasn't really the motivation. And right. I kind of do barely make a living, you know? Right. It's good enough for me. But, you know, the whole thing was, you know, uh, I think that the music thing became like a whole identity, like a signifier for me in terms of total worldview and attitude and being DIY, like being self-sufficient and making your own stuff and making your own culture. That aspect was immediately attractive to you? Yeah, and, and having being part of a culture and uniting people and having a common message that was maybe against the mainstream and stuff. I've always been a nonconformist. Like, I always despised conformity. Yeah. <laughs> I still do. But I'm softer on it now. I'm just like, well, but that's natural. I'm just not part of that. I have the defect. I'm a mutant. I'm, I have nonconformity gene. Right. Everyone else has it because they're normal. It's fine. Right. And and conformity is what creates society, really. I mean, it's not... You know, I'm lucky I can be a nonconformist in this society that they allow me the space to be it because it's not guaranteed. Right. There's plenty of cultures where you're not allowed to be a nonconformist. Right. And you can be murdered. Yeah, my father-in-law is from Pyongyang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean... Yeah. I'm lucky that I get to, like, be Weasel Walter all the time, you know? I mean, it's yay me. <laughs> I mean, I pay for it in other ways, but, you know, I mean, whatever. But, yeah, punk rock was really important for me, and through it I found free jazz and no wave. Wait, how did, wait, how, wait, but what do you mean? How did, how did punk rock then present free jazz to you? Well, good question, and I'll make it as short as possible. Um, the crossovers, especially in the New York scene, with a lot of kind of loft era players uh -huh. playing in with James Chance and the No Wave bands and right. sort of bands like Defunct and uh, Ronald Shannon Jackson and Ornette Coleman and um, James Blood Ulmer and all that stuff sort of playing at the same venues as a lot of the like post-punk bands. So were no you Wave taking that, that sort of curiosity that you initially took with the radio yeah. and applying it to like, well, what are these clubs where people are playing, cataloging yep. it? The whole thing. How were you hearing about it if you're in Books. Rockford, Illinois? Books. Serious as Because they life? used to be... Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I have my the copy I stole from the library when I was 13 in my room right now. I had to have it. I'm sorry. Well, uh, my I did work there, and it's conflict of interest. You know what? But... You stealing that book and internalizing it the way that you did has done far more good than if it just sat there, you know, while And some, gone like, out of print. And some teenagers, like, dry hump each other beside it in Well, the it would have been deleted by now. It's, right. it, it wouldn't even be in the collection. You were, you were right to steal it. Well, I don't know if I was right, but I felt of desperation that yeah. I like a book like that I didn't go just stealing a ton of books from the library that was one book that I was like uh I don't think I'm ever gonna see this again and I relate to this so strongly a lot of and in there yeah not only that it's it documents a lot of stuff that's not really that well documented it's sort of an in-between period yeah. book it's not like the 60s it's like that weird loft pre-loft period yeah. so um well, I was just a dork, so I had to know everything. I was really in love with the New York of the 70s vibe, you know, which is a bit mythical and a bit fake. Sure. And, you know, it's it's a mix of everything. So I was researching the whole punk scene, and then I got really into the no-wave stuff because it was sort of the noisier, sort of like punk extrapolated through like more of an LSD, nihilist yeah. kind of right. nonconformist lens. And a lot of the people that... Um, you know, James Chance would use 
you know, black musicians in his bands, you know, from the loft scene, like people like Albert McDowell or Burn Nix or all yeah. these people. And I was like, hmm, who are these guys? You know, and then I'm like, oh, they play with this guy, Ornette Coleman. What's this? And I checked it out and I was like, okay. Yeah, I mean. This is crazy. Like, this is some kind of punk to my ears. What was the first Ornette that you heard? Opening the Caravan of Dreams. Okay, so now. I got pretty advanced pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, you weren't uh, listening to well, Jazz to come know, and... I, well, I eventually caught up with all of it, but the, the reason why I bought that particular record was I, when I was about 13, 14 years old, I really wanted to get that DNA EP. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was on Kip Hanrahan's label, which was really obscure, and I was kind of like, where do I find this record? Like, right. I'd go to the record store, and they'd be like, we don't know anything about this. This is before that reissue had yeah, happened. Yeah, this is uh, 1987. Okay. And I, I found that that label was distributed by a place called NMDS, New Music Distribution System. Carla Blaze thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, at, at, the, at, a, at the initial point, yeah. Right. But it was basically the hub for experimental music in the in the 80s. I mean, all the, the DIY independent records, like classical, free jazz, like avant-garde shit, all in the NMDS catalog. And I ordered it. I got the catalog. Came in this awesome... I still have it. This Keith Haring cover... Yeah. It's just like the who's who of American Europe, European independent like new music labels. And it's like, oh, and there it is, American Clave Records, DNA EP, it's $8, still in print, they have it, yeah. send it to me. So I started buying, you know, that that book was a Bible. How like were you that, paying for this stuff? You had a job? Um, You know, I had mowed lawns and took yeah. out the garbage and, <laughs> you know, I had a job at the library, I used to shell books. Yeah. You know, I get paid like three fifteen hours sure. you know or whatever so yeah i was buying i had a little you know i probably had like a five dollar a week allowance or some crazy sure. stuff like that so i would just save my money and then i'd buy an ornette coleman record or i'd you know i there were so many records that that catalog had a synopsis of almost every record so it was like an encyclopedia yeah you could just read this thing like cover to cover it's and be universe like, at like, your fingertips. What's Conlon Nancaro? What's you know who's Meredith Monk? All what of is, it's there. Yeah, it's all there. And I have I have the last two catalogs of that, and they're like enshrined in my reference. When you think back to that time, do you remember like seeing a distinction between like okay, there's Conlon Nancaro, but then there's Sam Rivers, there's Meredith Monk, and there's also Rashid Ali. Yeah. Like, did you, was it all kind of like one thing to you or were you, like, how quickly did you begin to see that this is many universes jammed into one book? I don't, I don't think I was that intelligent to be that analytical about it, but I felt that there was, I was into, you know, like the iconoclasm of yeah. these individual visions mm -hmm. and I could always relate to that, that iconoclasm and I don't think I was looking for it expressly. It's just that I was kind of like kind of an angry kid and nonconformist. You had and, any friends? Yeah, I had friends, yeah. but they were like punks. They were troublemakers. Yeah. <laughs> like most of my friends were in jail or had heroin addictions by the time they were in their 20s, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I definitely hung out with a pretty rough crew, um, but they were all surrealists. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were definitely into the black humor of reality. Yeah. And... uh you know, we were cut from the same class, like working class, kind of like just trying to get by kind of stuff. So, but for me, I was sort of outside of everything. They were like, oh God, here comes Weasel with his Lydia Lunch records right. and Ornette Coleman and all this stuff. They kind of rolled their eyes, but now some of them are like, you know what? I'm kind of glad you forced me to, to deal with this stuff because it's cool and I can see why it's cool. Like this is 
shit like emails I've gotten in the last year. You know what right. I mean? Like, thanks for being an asshole and forcing Ornette Coleman on me. I'm right. glad you did. Right, right. Like, skipping school and, like, well, that was my thing. is, like, an immediate act of subversion. Well, I was just like, why wouldn't people want to listen to Cecil Taylor? What's wrong with you? I'm in high school, like, proselytizing, like, if you're not into Albert Eiler, you're stupid. You're wrong. You have bad <laughs> taste. Like, what? But, I mean, I, I stayed like that until I was in my mid-30s. Where I was like, <laughs> if you don't agree with my taste, you're so stupid. I can't. No aesthetic shortcomings will pass my my hallowed, you know. I was such an aesthetic fascist, that's uh-huh. what I used to call myself, because I was such a asshole about aesthetics because I thought it was the only thing that mattered. Right. And they had to be upheld at all costs. And yeah. I had no no time for anyone's bad taste. <laughs> but but like once you were No, I, I can I can relate to that completely. But what an assholeish thing. I mean it's very immature to think that you're the center of the universe in terms of aesthetics. And I did for decades because I didn't know any better. I didn't know I was like, oh well let people like what they like. You don't have to like it. We, yeah. You know, we can ignore anything you know, we don't like. It's funny, though, because <laughs> I've made an official decision, and I've announced this to a couple of people yeah. in the last couple of months, where I've decided, because I can be a really mean person. I have, like, a strong bully instinct, and it's always there. I've decided to be incredibly condescending to people who I find to be culturally unaware. Okay. Because people, I, man, people talk shit to me all the fucking time. I'm not talking about musicians. I'm talking about, like... People I know, like through my job and stuff. See, where, I don't talk to normal people. So that's the thing, you know. People are like, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, like people find out. Like, I watch DVDs and I collect. And they're like, <laughs> what are you doing, old man? And it's like, oh yeah, I don't fucking you know mind the troughs of shit that you do. You know, with, with you, I, I've decided to no longer be kind to people who. At the, I don't care if you don't give a shit about jazz. If you don't have a love and appreciate or an awareness of mm. John Coltrane of Ornette Coleman and what these people have been just as like a citizen of a quote unquote enlightened world. You've become very vulnerable around me. I just don't expect anything from anyone. You know, I really don't because we live in such an anti-intellectual milieu. Right. I mean, it's, it's sort of a classist thing. I think in a, in a, in a macrocosmic way, it's classism to be like, well, you people down here are going to like mainstream garbage because we make money off that. No, like, here I it is. Mean, but know? I remember I went out to dinner. This was like a couple years ago mm-hmm. with um, my mom and like an old friend of hers who I've known since childhood. You know, this guy doesn't make this guy's been broke his entire life. But, you know, he's like a guy who's born in the 40s. He grew up in the 60s. But we were talking about hipsters. And he was like, I don't understand what hipsters are. And I was kind of explaining it. And he's like, so what are they about? Are they against the war? And I was like, no, no. They don't <laughs> the war. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, they don't care about that. And he's like, what are they about? They're about, like, music? I was like, no, they're, they're they don't, no, like, you're, you're missing the point. Like, th- that used to be a real question. Like, what are you about, man? Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I, I spend a lot more time worried about doing stuff I like and stuff I want to well, do than what other people are doing. Uh, yes, and that's the, hel- that's the healthy thing. Well, I wasn't always that healthy. Well, I know. As you've said, this is a recent phenomenon. Yeah, I think so. All right, so going back to your friends who you were like, you fucking idiot, if you don't know who Cecil Taylor is, get out of my life. Or at least now that I'm playing it for you, if you don't like it, you're wrong. Right. Stuff like that. But a lot of them kind of bend. They're like, oh, he believes in this strongly. Were you a good student? I was uninspired because I didn't um, care about the topics. I was more busy like, well, I'm going to do music, so... I'm not here. You already knew that oh. there was a, oh, yeah. a path. No. Yeah. 
I, I knew really quickly that this was going to, what I was going to do. Um, did you have a sense that it was going to be the thing that took you out of this town that was, well, I knew that I was going to leave town <laughs> and I was going to do it. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. I mean, I got out as quickly as I could. I, here's, here's how, here's how insane I was compared to how insane I am now. My parents were like, so what are you going to do after you graduate? I was like, well, me and my two friends, we're going to get a bus and we're going to move to New York City and be a band. And they're like, oh, really? Where are you going to get this bus? And I was like, steal it. Uh. <laughs> they're like, with what money are you going to buy this bus? I was like, uh. and they're like, how would you like to go to college? Were they, were they pushing you to go to college? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I went to, I went, I basically, the first college I saw, I just took and it was really cheap. I went to this crappy private college called Columbia College in Chicago. Uh-huh. Stupid. It's basically just like a babysitting place for fucking losers who didn't go to a real college. <laughs> Stupid. Was it one of those places where bad students would go get their like GPA up and then transfer or? Probably. I, that wasn't really my problem. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I was in the so-called gifted program, like a desegregation program in Rockford where they were sort of trying to, um, integrate like have integrated school system because it was really kind of segregated yeah um in the 70s so i was bussed as part of this social experiment where they had this so-called gifted program in in grade school that was in you know like a like a largely black lower class you know like poor neighborhood yeah and i you know i was like working class or whatever so it wasn't that insane to me it was just like oh okay so i i I grew up around a lot of different people. You know, I grew up around, you know, African-Americans and Hispanics and stuff like that. Like, just as like, well, these are just the people I go to school with. So, you know, I, diversity to me is like second nature. It's not really, it's no big deal to me. But um, I guess I was in this so-called gifted program for some sort of reason. I tested into it, but I never really gave a fuck about school because I just thought it was irrelevant. Yeah. I mean, I'm really myopic in some degrees because i always cared about music and stuff and i don't really care about you know like current events right <laughs> i mean once again i can afford to do that i afford quote quote you know like i've made that into my life you know and i'm, I'm not really i'm sort of like a mensch like i'm like a juggernaut of music like i don't really care about much other stuff and yeah there's good and bad things about that you know what though i realized recently <laughs> everyone kind of knows about two or three things and that's it great I mean, honestly. Well, I know some people who know a lot about a lot of things. I mean, I, I, I hang out, you know, I let my friends filter a lot of reality for me. Yeah. I mean, I hang out with news junkies like Tim Dahl and Lydia Lunch and these kind of people, and they just process everything. I can't even believe, like, Tim Dahl's hilarious. He knows everything about everything. It's like, you know, we'll be in the van, and he'll be like, well, you know the thing about 16th century cutlery is, you know, and then he'll go on this long right. thing about whatever tangent gets brought up, right. and everyone's in tears laughing because he somehow knows all this stuff. So I like to hang out with people who are smarter than me. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Like, I think yeah. that's really important. So when you finish high school and you said, we're going to go fucking get a van and go live in New York. I'm just like, yeah, right. I so, mean, I wanted to go to New York so bad, but I didn't really know what it was about. I had a mythological idea of what it was about. Right, because you'd never been. And we're, this is 89? I, I went to, uh, yeah, 89. 89. Right. So. I started college in 90. Yeah. I mean, New York, you know, so David Dinkins was mayor. It was still pretty grim downtown. Oh, no. 
Oh, you could get really fucked up downtown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like down could... around here was pretty fucked up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, it was still pretty rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, as far as the music thing went, I can't really say there was... I mean, Knitting Factory would have been popping off like in its heyday at yeah, that point. Just getting started, but still kind of sleazy, not really publicized. You yeah. Know? Um, but I was really into the classic, like, Faloth scene and, and Ornette Coleman and yeah. No Wave. And, like, did did you have stuff. an awareness of uh, Ornette's <laughs> loft where people could come play? I knew about it. Yeah. I mean, I did as much research as you could. You have to understand that, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, people actually wrote books about this shit, man. You know, like, As Serious As Your Life is one of them, but there were a ton of books about free music that... Even in Rockford, Illinois, I could walk into the library and I had no competition. You know, I was reading John Coltrane biographies and, you know, books like John Litweiler's The Freedom Principle yeah, yeah, yeah. and like all these like things and just taking notes and going like, is that something? who is Charles Tyler, you know, and right. all this crazy shit as, as a 17 year old. Is that something? In the middle and of I nowhere. I used to buy these records yeah. in the middle of nowhere because somebody was cool enough in that town that they used to sell them to this used record store. Were you a tape trader? Did you do that thing where you would mail with people? A eh, little bit, but. I was buying all the classic free jazz records for like four bucks in high yeah. school because there was, uh, I really was in the right place at the right time in a weird way. There were cool record stores in Rockford. And, you know, by high school, I had all the 60s impulse shit. Like I had all the Archie Shep. I had all the fucking Col late Coltrane That's stuff. Essential I had, shit. Yeah, I had, I had fucking 30 Ornette Coleman records. I had Cecil, T I had Albert Eiler stuff. Albert Eiler was harder to find, but. Yeah. But at that point, you could get all that stuff for four bucks because nobody wanted it. It wasn't wanted cool. It. Right. Nobody liked free jazz in the late 80s. Right. I mean, it was like, you couldn't give that stuff away. So I was buying it all for pennies on the dollar. And later yeah. on, I sold it to pay my rent. Really? Oh, yeah. By 2000, man. I was eBay. I mean, I have mega feedback on eBay, bro. I mean, I was <laughs> selling it all. I mean, I was flipping records, you know, like BYGs, all that stuff. I yeah. used to buy those for four bucks, and then I'd go, I'd be like, well, I gotta eat, so I'm gonna sell this Sonny Sherrock record for 30 bucks, and then that was how I did it. So I don't have a lot of my cool stuff really? anymore. No. Was it heartbreaking to get rid of that stuff? No. It was essential. I mean, now that I'm 46, I don't, I don't feel like my... My possessions define me as much as they sure. used to. Like, I felt like I was building a shibboleth around myself. Like, yeah. this is who I am. I know all this stuff, and I'm really intimate with all this information. And now I'm just like, eh. Yeah, I mean, well, it's funny. I was thinking about this before you came over here because uh, the concept of being a researcher is like something I don't think people really think about anymore. My, my stepfather who raised me was a notable author. Okay. He was also a notable researcher and people would contact him professionally over the years for access to his research. Mm -hmm. You dig <laughs> like the, yeah. this is like wrap your head around that. There used to be people who spent their time collecting information and sorting it yeah. so that it would be available to people. Is there any part of you that feels like with the advent of the internet that that work has been sort of it's different viewed i mean i was for a while i was a go-to source on no wave kind of stuff because i'd done a lot of research yeah and i had a lot of the stats and dates and names and stuff like that and i helped with some re with reissues and stuff like that and it was all well and good for me that was just fun like nerdy fun you know like yes i know what date blah 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 happened on so i feel like a lot of things have changed since the internet, some good, some bad, but I just feel like it's changed. I'm not dark on the fact that I can't, well, like I don't go to record stores anymore because what's the fucking point? I'm what not going to find anything. Exist? 
Yeah, they not only do they not exist when they exist, everything's overpriced because they looked it all up on Discogs and they know exactly how much it, it sold for, and you can't find it. And they can't the afford store. to spend a lot of money on things that they're not going to sell. So the selection. It's like sucks. these thirty dollar reissues of dollar bin records, and then like overpriced used records. It's like there's no joy in that for me. So it's like the the paradigm has shifted. Yeah. Like coming out of the eighties and buying like like wetting my pants because I found a sealed copy of Science Fiction by Ornette Coleman for $4. Like, ah! You're not going to find that now for $4 ever again in ever, right. never, never, never. Yeah, that days is over. Yeah, it's over. So yeah. it's like, boo-hoo, it's sad that it didn't stay the same, but now it's just like the game is different. Yeah. I already know all the Ornette Coleman records. I yeah. If I want to hear one, I go on YouTube and play it. It's like, oh, that's cool. Body Meadow. Okay, I heard that for the <laughs> eight millionth time. It's good. So I don't know. There's a different there's different priorities now that everything is everything and everyone knows everything. I don't feel like I have to validate myself by having a cool record collection. Right. Give a fuck. Right, 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 right. I just dumped like five, six hundred CDs. It's Thor- easy Thor- to Thor- do. came over, he picked them up, I said he can have them. Wow. Well, that guy is uh, like a pig in shit now, I'm sure. He what a what a music junkie. He's a huge music junkie. Absolutely. Wait, so so we uh, did you actually have a band going at this time? Yeah, but it was very crude. Um I had I had little punk bands in the 80s that made demo tapes and stuff. Uh-huh. Playing a gig impossible. Making a record impossible. I mean, you know, I had these Weird little bands that would do these rehearsals and record them every week and never went anywhere. I still have all that. That's part of the process. I know, but I was doing, like, you know, in high school I was doing, like, contortions covers and flipper covers and, you know, all this kind of no-wave-ish stuff. Were you presenting it as covers? Well, yeah, we just were like, let's play play the song Contort Yourself or something like that, you know, like, something to do. We sucked. We were terrible. I mean, I had people for a long time tell me that I was very bad at playing instruments. Like, in the moment, like, like you'll hey, never be any good. Like, you're a shitty drummer. Like, I had people tell me that for a long time. I was just kind of like, well, but I like doing it, and I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Where are they now? <laughs> I don't know. I might still be a shitty drummer. It's hard to say. I mean, I, I do some things, but, you know, like I said, to go back to that idea, they're just tools. Like, I like to make music and structure, and I use something like the drums as a tool i don't care about being the best drummer yeah i'm pr- pretty much self-taught you know in everything so. yeah, yeah, yeah no me too me too did um so how long did you stick around at columbia college columbia? i made it through i slept through you did four, four and a half years yeah. Four. <laughs> yeah i have a bachelor but i have a ba in composition for what it's worth you studied composition there I guess if sleeping through classes is studying, I I went to the library. Well, I started. I got to Chicago. And I started playing in bands. I was like, "Smell you later, school." Yeah. You know, I started playing in weird bands. I started the Flying Lutenbachers in 1991. I met Hal Russell, and he kind of liked my energy. And you know, he needed he need Hal Hal Russell needed a, a like a farm team to play his charts and stuff. Right. And that, he was like, "Oh, here's this 19 year old asshole playing the drums." Like. He's good enough. He'll be fine. Right. So we kind of made this this group called the Flying Lutenbachers. And and what was the initial lineup? It was me on drums and Hal Russell, the late Hal Russell, who died in like 93, I think, on saxophone trumpet. And this guy, Chad Organ. Do you hear that? Is that? It's like a fucking rat or something running into the ceiling. You hear that, right? Nah. Right. 
too into myself. Can't hear right. it. So, so, yeah, so you and <laughs> so Hal Russell. So I started this free jazz trio. Yeah, but so it was you, it was Hal Russell playing sax and trumpet. And this guy I met at school named Chad Organ, who was a guy that worked at a record store who was kind of, we shared some taste in music. And he yeah. kind of invited himself in the band. I was kind of like, oh. You heard that, right? Yeah, I totally heard that. Okay, sorry. It's awesome. <laughs> music verite. Um, but, uh, yeah, we had a we had a free jazz trio. We just did you Albert Eiler covers. We play um, ghosts and vibrations and all this kind of shit. And we had some original stuff. And still, I as a nineteen year old kid, I had no idea how to get a gig or anything like that. We just we basically used to take the bus out to his place in Lyons, Illinois, and jam in his fucking. So you attic. weren't gigging; you were just jamming. No, that lineup did a radio show on Northwestern University in ninety two, and that was the only public public thing that we did because yeah. we just didn't. I don't think Hal really cared about playing gigs with us. I think we were like his farm team. Sure. You know, like he was just like working out charts with us and stuff. Yeah. But I was like serious. I was like, we got to do this. We got to do this. And Hal Russell kind of didn't, he was kind of like, mm, I don't know. And I finally booked a gig. I found out how to book a gig opening for a band in 92 at this place called Lounge Axe. And um, I was like, hey, Hal, I got a gig. And he's like, Hey man, uh, so what does it pay? I was like, I don't know, pay like uh, whatever they pay us. And he's like, hmm, well, you got to give me fifty bucks. And this I was is ninety like, three, ninety two, and okay. I was like, oh, I don't have fifty bucks. And he's like, well, I can't play the gig. And I was like, what? And hung up the phone. And I was like, I'm not gonna play this gig. Uh, and then I had I I had met a guy named Ken Vandermark recently, uh -huh. and I was like, Ken, it's Weasel. Remember me? Yeah. Do you want to play a gig? Yeah, and that was our first gig. Basically, I, Ken Vandermark came in, learned all the charts with like a few days, and we played, you know, played a gig. And that was Hal's exit from the group. Yeah, I mean, he's really bitter that I kept the band name. Did he come up with it? Well, his real name was Harold Russell Lutenbacher, so it was kind of a play on his name. He was like, "That's my name," and I was yeah. just kind of like, "But I made this logo, and like, I, we have these songs, and I, I was real." You know, I was just like, I'm going to do this. Like, this is my band now. Yeah. Bye. And I just kept it going. I mean, I think I kind of hijacked the band really early on, and I kind of stayed that way. It never really was a democracy. It was always kind of me leading. Did it start with the, 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 under the, the, uh, the guise of, yeah, this is an egalitarian. Well, to be honest, to be fair to him, he's kind of right. You yeah. know, in retrospect, it was his name. And I probably should have just changed the name and started over, but it didn't happen. So it's like you can't really erase history. Yeah. But I think he, I think he actually had a point retrospectively. Sure. I probably should have changed the name of the band and then just did my own thing. But right. we kept it. But the name is a non sequitur. Most people don't know what the fuck it means. Right. It's just some stupid name, you know. Yeah, but if it was, yeah, I, 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 I think I would be pretty bothered if someone started a bank with the Flying Zimmermans after I left. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. So I can see the other side of a point, but. He is long deceased, and yeah. uh, that's that's life. I and mean, now you honor his legacy with this band's name. Oh, I don't know. He's such a small part of it. You know, I mean, yeah. that's like another lifetime ago to me. So the the initial gigging trio yeah. was you, Ken, and Chris. Uh, this guy, Chad Oregon. Chad, I'm sorry. I'm that's sorry. okay. Um, he doesn't mind. <laughs> is he around? That's a story for off off camera. <laughs> He's He is... 
He lives under another pseudonym now, and I've been sworn to secrecy on it. He is not part of the public eye, no. Okay. But he that's another lifetime ago. That's just but so, so I've talked to I've actually talked with Ken about this time in Chicago. <laughs> and not specifically about the Lindenbachers, okay. but just about what the scene was like where yeah. for someone like him, he just he told me his experience of that time. Yeah. Where he started booking his own gigs. He was kind of coming mm-hmm. out of his shell. And that there was sort of like a natural um crossover of of jazz groups and groups like Tortoise and yeah. who were, were booking gigs together and actually drawing crowds and doing it in a way that didn't really have precedent. I feel absolutely, totally lucky that I came to Chicago exactly when I did because I got in on the ground floor of a lot of things. Yeah. And, um, you know, when, when I met Ken Vandermark, we met an Anthony Braxton uh, orchestra workshop where we were kind of the only people in, in Champaign-Urbana. No, in Rockford. In Rockford. Yeah. Bra- or, no, I'm sorry, Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. Braxton came to Chicago, and um, he held his workshop at this music venue called South End Wor- Music Works that I was volunteering at. And Ken, or was it? No, it was it was part of Columbia College, actually. I think it was part of Columbia College. The, I'm sorry, this is like cobweb stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, I really yeah. have to strain to... Um, but Ken was the only other person in the, the workshop that actually liked Anthony Braxton's music. So we kind of automatically like spied each other. Like, uh, I mean, I've talked to Ken about that period of time yeah. and to him, I think Braxton was a legend. Me too. Yeah. I have, you know, forces in motion, huge book in high school. I, I totally did my research. I loved all the Arista freedom records yeah. and the BYG stuff. I have those. So I, I take it to understand. I, I take it that you had an understanding and appreciation of the AACM totally and what Chicago meant to that. Totally, and I met a lot of those guys working early on. I, I was at the um, AACM's 25th anniversary thing in 92, and I met Roscoe Mitchell, and I met all these guys who were, like, sacred to me. You know, yeah. it was pretty insane, and they're just like, who's this crazy little kid, you know? Yeah. And they kind of were like, all right, that's cool. Right. You know? They're so just you- like, whatever, weirdo. <laughs> so you and Ken are in this workshop with Braxton. Yeah, and we just, we noticed that we were the only people who actually liked the music and that we both kind of could play some stuff, so we kept yeah. in touch. And that's the thing is when, when Hal bailed from the Lutenbachers thing right on the cusp of the gig, the mighty first gig, I was like, fuck, How I was that play gig, by the way? It was fine or whatever, <laughs> you know, I mean, pfft. You know, it's some kid stuff. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of music like that in Chicago. I mean, the free thing was not cool then. There was basically the AACM stuff on the south side of Chicago, which a lot of the the A and B list people were long gone in like New York or elsewhere. So you had kind of these kind of people who weren't really like the movers, but they were keeping the thing alive. And but it was a little like kind of like Afrocentric, like dashikis and stuff like that. It wasn't really very hip. It was kind of like Latin grooves and stuff. For what it's worth, I mean, but but cool people came out of that, and it's I respect it. I mean, it was it's the AACM is super important. Just no, I have nothing else to say yeah. about it. Um, and there was the Hal Russell NRG Ensemble, which was Hal's band that you know basically played his repertoire, and they were kind of a noisy punk jazz like free jazz band. And then there was a band called Lyoff Munamula, which was Michael's Rang's trio with these two guys that was playing like kind of non idiomatic free music. And there might have been a few other little small things that I'm leaving out, but basically there was no scene at that point. These bands would play little isolated gigs that no one would come to. Yeah. And that was it. But I was so, you know, by the time I was 19 years old, like 60s free jazz was my hugest influence, but tempered through like kind of a white punk thing, filter or whatever. 
So I I went to Chicago to play free jazz. I was just like I'm playing free jazz. Like I was really into late Coltrane, Eiler, Cecil Taylor, Ornette Coleman, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So, and as a drummer, you were really kind of checking out what the cats, the Edward Blackwells, the Rashid Ali's, the Elvins. All... I imitated them as poorly as I possibly could muster. <laughs> Rashid Ali, huge, especially on the late Coltrane stuff. Yeah. Interstellar Space. Ed Blackwell, I could never, I still can't play like Ed Blackwell. No one can. I mean, it's just, that guy was so burning in the early 70s. It's just like, oh, it's like yeah. insane. I, was like, I can't even believe morning, what he's actually, doing. And it's just like, this shit's 40 years ago. Oh, and his craziest shit isn't really legitimately released. Like, he was the most burning around like 72, 73. Yeah. And it's kind of like, when you hear these bootlegs, you're just like, oh my God, it's, it's like insane. a fucking tank. It's fucking insane. I am, like, he definitely, that's one of those guys that, like, throws the gauntlet down, like, hey, this is what I can do. Like, I can't got? even touch the hem of Ed Blackwell. Never will be. I, I don't have the discipline. I don't have the desire of that guy's magic. But I was really into. Um, Beaver Harris. Yeah. I was really into Rashid Ali, Sonny, Sonny Murray. Murray you know? Yeah. Especially the myth of Sonny Murray because there was so much at that point, there wasn't a lot of information. It was like, who is this crazy motherfucker? Like he's there's so, well, yes, I know, but there's so, so little documentation, but everything I hear, it's like, this guy's like a unicorn. He's yeah. like insane. Like he changes his drum style every year, yeah. you know? And like, what is this guy doing? So, I mean... I did all the research I could do on these cats, and you know I listened to everything I could find. And at that point, I did pretty good, you know, because I I was devoted to it. I mean, I'm sure there are people from both cities who were there at the time who would slap the shit out of me for saying this, but it seems like <laughs> Chicago in the early '90s had some similarity, something in common with New York in the late '70s. Well, I'll tell you what it was: the rent was cheap. Yeah, it was a major city with cheap rent. There were venues, there were record stores, there were people that wanted to go to shows. There, you could hang out late. I mean, when you have a burning scene, it's because people can fucking hang out all night and dick around. Yeah. When they can't, the scene kind of tightens up. So, I mean, we had that. We had cheap. My my rent when I first moved out of the dorm was one thirty five a month. Right. And I lived with four friends in the space of three normal humans and we fucking raged we we did rehearsals in the back we <laughs> i lived in wicker kind of pre-cool wicker park I mean, wicker park is like yeah it was like the first place we just looked in the paper and we're like three bedroom apartment 500 bucks and we just went and looked at it and the the landlord was a guy who played one of the the hall monitors in rock and roll high school this guy dan <laughs> such a fucking asshole <laughs> fuck you dan by the way fuck you but anyways he was a total slumlord <laughs> And he was just like, he saw us and he's just like, okay, you little assholes. Yeah, go live in there. And he stopped construction on it. So the second half of the apartment was just open air. Yeah. And, but we would, we would set up our instruments and jam and the neighborhood at one point, they wanted to murder us. We were just like, hey, and we're looking down and there's like a crowd of people like, we're going to kill you. And we're like, ah, you know, we were such idiot, like kids. I mean, stupid moron kid stuff of like. Yay, we're being really groovy. And everyone's like, we're going to murder you the minute you step out of this apartment. We're like, uh-oh, cause and effect? What the? I didn't know that was... <laughs> so, I mean, immediately I started... You know, I was a terror. I mean, people who know me from back then know that, yeah, I could be funny, but I was also extremely unfiltered. And I did not think before I talked. And I was really full of shit. And I was uh, had a lot of energy. And I was really angry and crazy and, you know... But pretty early on, did you start your thing of like, I'm going to grab another beer in a second. I don't blame you. Did you start your thing of, of, I mean, what I know of you is that like you're very self-reliant in terms of 
booking gigs, putting groups together, handling all the aspects of production on a record, and then releasing it. And I mean, this is, you know, there, there's a certain type of person that does that. Yeah. I have an aspect of that to myself. Um, was that showing itself early on? Well, I didn't have any options. And that's yeah. why it came so natural to me is because I just looked and I was like, oh, yeah, nobody wants to book my gigs or put out my records, and they still kind of don't. So, <laughs> But I don't feel bad about that because right. my attitude is if I don't want to do what I'm doing, I don't have to do it. I can do something else. Yeah. So fine. Sure. I do it. You know, I want to put out a CD. I put out a CD, sell some, make money back, do another one, hustle, hustle, hustle. You know, we have so much art. We have so much awesome art. Yeah. I don't expect, you know, I don't have any kind of promotion that would in encourage people to really pursue following my art any more than anyone else's. So. I mean, I, you know, we're, we're going to, as we have been, as we will continue to, like, we're going to take a lot of detours here. Yeah. I constantly, or I have less now because I don't fucking give a shit about anything anymore, but like. Yeah. <laughs> I see you're nihilist like me. <laughs> like, bemoan the fact that there aren't other people. If everyone just sort of had, like, some element of that to their beings, that some of that, like for lack of a better term, go-getterness of, we need a place to play, let's set up a place to play, you know? But it comes in waves, you know? I mean, it's really, there There are, the thriving of scenes and culture has to do with so many parameters, economy, location, media, um, money, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, like, people are still drawn to New York for culture, right? Like, I can't actually, as, as hard as it is in New York, I can't imagine being anywhere else doing yeah. this. I can't. I've thought about it, trust me. I'm like, huh, I tried to move to Philly. <laughs> Disaster. Yeah. Oh, my God. I moved there for three months a few years ago, and it was just like, okay, here I am in Philadelphia doing nothing. Okay, I got to get the fuck back to New York now. So I did it. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, I've been through these cycles in Chicago. I've been through the cycles in, well, even Rockford had a small cycle. Chicago... And I moved to Oakland, and the Bay Area. Had I mean, Bay Area, forget about it. They've seen it, yeah, clearer than anyone. And of... New York's the same thing. It's totally cyclic. I mean, honestly, it ain't going to be tons of fun again until the rent gets cheaper, and I don't see that happening. Or there's like a next adjustment to rent, you know, like economically because people are making more money. I'm po, you know, like I, yeah. I can't. I've never made any, you know, I don't make adult amounts of money. I sort of subsist and survive sure. because I, I basically just said, well, my time is more important to me. So there's a trade-off there. These cities aren't going to be okay <laughs> until you allow people the people until you allow people the opportunity to like to meaningfully meaningfully invest in them. I mean, I'm I I take some you know I don't take pride in much of anything, but one thing like I do take pride in is like since I've lived in New York City, I've helped open three businesses in this neighborhood. You know, I've bought my apartment in this neighborhood. Like I feel attached to this neighborhood, and I feel like I've actually contributed to it. I was able to work out a way to be you know because this fucking city, like these other fucking cities, are like a renter's market. No one can actually afford to be personally invested in it. If you look at the people like you know, like William Parker and Zorn and Elliot and all those guys who came yep. to the East Village in the 70s, they right. all did so in the exact same way, which was the city was incentivizing moving to this place, which mm -hmm. was rather than landlords burning their buildings down, they gave them financial incentives to invest in the buildings. And so William, all those guys, they personally like replaced the pipes. Yep. You know, that's 
Yeah, Lydia Lunch, when she moved here when she was 17, she moved into an abandoned building. Yeah. Basically because the guy was like, well, it's better to have somebody in this building than not. So right. go ahead, kid. A 17-year-old girl living yeah. in an abandoned building. Yeah. <laughs> Those were different times. It's different times. It's the Wild West. Well, but in a weird way, because I come from a sort of modest class background, the way these people did things is resonates with me yeah. you know like i've always been more about ideas than technology and and having the current i mean here i'm gonna show you my phone i'm gonna get one of those 15 bucks a month no one can call me i text text machine you don't call uh, no no one can call me <laughs> no i don't answer are you kidding yeah. me it cost me 350 if i answer the phone i'm not gonna answer that <laughs> it's not that i'm cheap i just don't right. need the distract i don't need to be walking around the streets going like who retweeted my Tinder, you know, or yeah. whatever people do. I don't I don't give a crap about that. I am I am a bit insular in the in sure. sense that I have sort of gotten rid of a lot of other things so I could focus on my music game and you know, having a having a old flip phone keeps me very disconnected in a way that I yeah. have more time for <laughs> the shit. So what were we talking about? But yeah, New York's a different thing. I mean, but the, but, I, I can't but, even believe I'm still here because ideally I shouldn't be able to afford to be here. But no, I keep you're not a like, Saudi prince, like you shouldn't be able to. Live no, here. I have no trust fund. I have nothing. I mean, it, and it's fine. It's it's okay. I mean, everyone's different. I'm not against anyone who has money. It's what you do with it and who you are and right. what your integrity is. I I, I know rich people. They're yeah. cool. I know cool rich people. I don't give a fuck. Right. It's not their problem that I don't have any money. Right. <laughs> But so 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 going back to Chicago, where in you're in Wicker Park and you yeah. it is this period of time ninety two ninety three kind of pre cool Wicker Park like right on the cusp, so there there were a lot of things to do and there were a lot of people there and I almost feel like there could be a cool history written about that period that never was written because there was so much shit happening because people yeah. could do stuff. I mean, in short, I still know a lot of those people and. You know, if they're still doing stuff like Quintron or Bobby Khan or yeah. weird weirdos like that. I mean, we're lifers, all weirdos, and we all met and we had a really good time and we did a lot of cool shit. And but you know, things are cyclic and they don't last forever. But ha so, how long were you in Chicago? You moved there for nineteen ninety, and I left in two thousand three because I hated it. I was so sick of it. What What did you get sick of? Well, I had put myself outside of a lot of politics because I was seen politics. Yeah. I was yeah. a jerk. Yeah. I was a self-righteous jerk <laughs> and an aesthetic fascist. So I had a lot of people who were not like that crazy about like, Oh no weasels here. Oh God. You know, right. I had, I had my adherents, but as time went on, I sort of doubled down on my asshole niche. I was like, I'm going like, to, I'm going to see this through, you know? Right. And I, I, I wasn't the funnest guy always. I could be really intense and I could be a real jerk and I could be real critical and kind of sadistic in some ways socially. So, you know, I wasn't really, you know, I didn't really, not a, not that many people had my back at that point. Yeah. And I had been touring a lot with the Flying Lutenbachers. And at that point, the Flying Lutenbachers were doing extremely hyper-composed, kind of like brutal prog, like atonal. What was that that group? Uh, two bass players and a drummer. Yeah. And we were playing, you know, like 20 minute long magma covers and, you know, we were doing really nuts. I mean, yeah, it was, it was, um, a lot of LSD at that point. Yeah. Oh, huge influence. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. LSD. Absolutely. Sorry, mom. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I was really going for it and I was doing some really crazy music. I mean, that music I still think is some of the most insane shit I've ever done in my life sure. where... I used to sit at a desk and fucking write the shit. What do you so think nuts. back to that period of time as a band leader, composer, drummer? Yeah. 
do you see the shift when you went from being what you described earlier as like a shitty drummer to being something that was more solidified, more codified? Mm, I don't. I I think that I was still uh, reaching for past my my abilities. You know what I mean? Like I was trying to do more than I could really pull off. Uh-huh. But that's how ambitious I was because I could see it. That's what everyone should be doing. I got to say, that's what everyone should be doing. Well, you, the... you only get better by pushing yourself. and But some people don't need to get better. You know what I mean? It's Everyone's different. Like, I just had, I had aspirations. I wanted, I was really into death metal, and I was really into trying to be like, I'm going to write the most insane 20-minute long composition I can think of, and I'm going to spend three years doing it, and it's going to have a million notes in it. It's going to be like totally... DSI, like... Well, no, I mean, I, I made a, a solo record by the Flying Lutenbachers called Systems Emerge from Complete Disorder that came out in 2003, and the last song on it is a 20-something minute piece called Rise of the Iridescent Behemoth, which is basically a MIDI, like an overdubbed MIDI nightmare prog piece that's so labyrinthine and like endless and baroque it took me three years to program and write it yeah and then i overdubbed all this crazy shit on top and it's it's total like lsd insanity but it's all structured super hyper structured and it's one of the most insane things i've ever done because i was just in the zone i was like i'm gonna write the most impossible music of all time and it's gonna rock so hard you know (laughs) this kind of stuff and i did it you know the record it can't be played i mean maybe in the future freaks could play this thing right but it's almost like unplayable technically you know it's just totally did you even present it to the band no no yeah no it's unplayable no i mean there are techniques for the drumming now that you like death metal things that you could kind of do it but it's not worth the effort you know right it was just sort of like i'm gonna make the most improbable insane music and just realize it to tape and then just let it be a thing after that the Flying Lutenbachers thing was always about and remains to be about doing cool, confrontational, kind of anti music with whatever people I think are good to, that are around that are good mm-hmm. to utilize for that. And it's shifted a lot of lineups. I mean, right now it's, you know, it's basically started again. We made our first record in 12 years and it's coming out in a month. It's yeah. awesome. And it's, you know, the band is Tim Dahl, Brandon Seabrook, and Matt Nelson. Motherfuckers. Yeah, it's insane. Motherfuckers. Well, not only that, we're, we're pirates. We're a bunch of fucking ball-swinging cowboy assholes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of a party band, you know? Like, I mean, part of part of the vibe is like, let's do this. Let's make free jazz fun again. Like, let's get sweaty and stinky, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? I mean, it's 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 uh, there's some self-parody in it. And, um, you know, we're we're all we're all fairly sensitive guys despite sure. our public images of being loud obnoxious party like men psychos. But, you know, yeah <laughs> psychos but you know i mean that's that's shtick and that's part of the meta text is uh, but how many times has the littenbuckers dissolved and reformed <sighs> okay <laughs> but you don't have to grab us a beer that. you think oh, about that yeah hmm. <laughs> well let's see lineup number one was a free jazz trio then ken vandermark came in then we started writing music and then i added a guitar player and a bass player and we were playing this kind of harmonic punk jazz stuff and then i fired the band and then we did this kind of no wave death metal trio and then i fired them and then i wanted to go back to free jazz oh wait before that i did it solo with a tape deck I, and then 
I fired those guys, and then I wanted to play acoustic free jazz. So then I had a band with Fred Lomberg Holm and a bass player and a reed player, and we did a couple albums, and we were playing super, like, FMP'd out, like, hardcore acoustic free jazz. And then I got sick of that, and I was really into prog. I wanted to do, like, a magma, like, prog so wait, so wait, thing. Did you, 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 said, you said the Littenbachers are my vehicle, and whatever yeah. I'm into is how the band's going to— Well, I'm the guy. I am the flying Littenbachers, yeah. 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 And, and I work with people. Some I made a couple, you know, a couple solo albums. Where but I just were you did doing the thing that everyone does at the time, where you improvise with a million people and and make records and have a thousand projects going at once? Uh, you know, by the end of Chicago, I was like, improvised music stinks. It's boring. And then I went uh. to and then I went to the West Coast and I met Damon Smith, the bass player. Yeah. And he totally catalyzed me. He's like, "Wait, Weasel Walters here? Hey, man, you want to play a gig?" I was like, <laughs> "I guess." Wait, why did you go to the West Coast? Um. That's why I was getting to about ten minutes ago. Okay. The Flying Lutenbachers were touring a lot when we when we had this kind of brutal prog version of the Lutenbachers. We were like, we're gonna tour, we're gonna fucking tour, and we played like 130 shows in a year or some insane shit like that. And we weren't making any money. We we're just like killing ourselves doing this. But we we're just like, we got to do this. Like, let's do it. At first, we weren't really playing so good. It was kind of like guys trying to play shit that was a little too hard for them. But by the end. We were kind of killing it. We were burning it because we just paid our dues like the hard way. Sure. And we learned to trial by fire. So by the end, we were going out to the West Coast. And the West Coast, San Francisco, is like you could kind of afford to live there still. And the scene was kind of burning. Like people were kind of partying. What year we're talking? 2002. Yeah. And that was even a little late in the game. Like yeah. it started about 2000. The tech shit had already started happening. Yeah. That's yeah. what burned it out, basically. But you had all these crazy bands out there, these kind of like weird, no wavish kind of noisy bands and stuff. And when we went out there, we were met with a welcoming committee. We played two shows and two nights with like the most burning bands. It was like Deerhoof and Burmese, Total Shutdown, all these crazy bands. And it was like fucking awesome. And basically, after one of the shows, John Dwyer from OCs, who's still a close friend of mine, he basically he was in a band called Pink and Brown at that point, uh -huh. which was a real aggro kind of like no wave duo like band. And it was Dwyer. He's just totally crazy and like confrontational afterwards he's like hey buddy let's go out drinking i was like great so we went on this insane pub crawl of san francisco where we kept getting kicked out like of every bar successively because we were being so obnoxious just like die bombing people's tables and like <laughs> i mean it was such a trail of tears it was so funny but but john told me later on that he basically did this thing to seduce me to move out to the west coast that's hilarious because he was like afterwards he's like hey buddy you moving here i was like yes i am well, did, you go, so, did you go to doc's clock Never heard of that one. Really? No. Oh, it's a classic San Francisco bar. Well, I mean, this was yeah. more about us just being chaotic sure. all night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't really about the bars per se. Sure, but it sure. It was sort sure. of like the mission, and you know, down in there. But we got kicked out of about six bars that night, and it was we were hysterically laughing the whole time. So I you mean, made the decision then, there, I'm coming. Yeah, absolutely. And I moved into a loft in uh, Oakland with some of the. Uh, members of Eraserata and XBXRX, which is a band that I joined soon after and, you know, stuff like that. There was basically, they had a real support system there and they basically like, let's get Weasel Walter to move here. Yay. They kind of all rallied mm -hmm. for me and I went and did it and I had, I really liked moving there. But the, the rock scene thing kind of waned not too long after I got there. I mean, I started another Lutenbachers lineup there and it was, you know, it was good. What was that lineup? Uh, Ed Rodriguez from Deerhoof on guitar and Mick Barr. Oh, well, yeah, Mick Barr was living there for a while. Right. Mick was in it. And this guy, Mike Green, who was in a band called Burmese. Uh -huh. And that was kind of my favorite lineup. In, in... Well, of the old bands. Yeah. Because it was, they could play anything. I mean, those guys were so sick. 
I could write anything and they'd play it. And I was super into like all dissonance all the time, all angles, all odd meters, <laughs> you know, like it had to be totally a 20th century modernism all the way, you know, and those guys were totally into it. So, and you were able to start gigging right away and taking the band out. Yeah. Well, originally I did it solo and then I got those guys and then, you know, sometimes it takes a while to figure out what I can do with the flying Lutenbachers. Cause it's not like I have the music all ready for you play it. It's sort of like, well, who's in it? You know, I got to figure out what they can do. But I started playing in a band called XBXRX, which was like a chaotic hardcore band that was sort of a little queer-ish, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Like, it was anti-macho hardcore band. It yeah. wasn't like, it was sort of like we, at one point we wore pink sailor suits, you know I mean? It was really, <laughs> really confrontational in this other way, yeah. you know what I mean? And we were really noisy and crazy, and um, Ed from Deerhoof was in it for a while, playing bass, and I was in drum, and it was these... These younger kids from Alabama, they were about 10 years younger than us, but they had had this band, and I had seen them in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I was always blown away. They used to do these shows that were like seven minutes long, where they would play like six crazy little 20-second songs, and lights, and smoke, and yeah. backflips, and I mean, they were a totally kamikaze band, and when I moved out there, I was like, hey man, you guys want to do XBX or X? I, I want to be in it, and they're like, hell yeah, and we made a record in like a few weeks and put it out on Narnak, and I mean, the shit was on. We were on tour like immediately. Yeah. Started the Lutenbachers, you know, started some other stuff. After a few years, um, the like party rock scene kind of went downhill because the rent started going up, mm-hmm. and people started kind of having to do shit. But then Damon Smith kind of came along and was like, hey, Weasel Walter, you want to play an improv gig? I was like... <laughs> I guess. You know, right. I was like, Im- improvised music, brr, you know, like, who cares? And then I was like, oh, wait, it's not that improvised music stinks. It's just that it was really stale for me in Chicago. Like, I just wasn't really into the scene. And, well, I was kind of outside of the scene anyways. So I mean, right. wasn't really included in it. But it didn't seem like a viable thing for me in Chicago. But once I went to the, the Bay Area, there were a ton of, like, cool people playing there. And Damon was bringing a lot of European people over there because... Um, you know, that's why I played with like John Butcher and he was hooking up the gigs for those guys. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, for a long time and, you know, I still work with Damon Damon. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's great. He's, he's a brother of mine. He is also known as being very outspoken, you know, but he, you know, when he, I've seen him play some incredible bass even recently where I'm just like, Oh my God, I get to play with this guy. It's amazing. I mean, it sounds like he was a conduit for a lot of activity. Well, he basically, he basically positioned me in a way that I don't think I could have positioned myself. And that I'm, I will be eternally grateful to him for that because he basically, he basically re-sparked my interest in improvised music and kind of in a weird way, got me to start really putting out my own stuff. And, you know, I mean, I mean, when you think about that time period, how much of that contact with improvised music was also about the relationships that you were forming? Well, you know, the whole Chicago thing, it's not really that happy. Like, I'm not that nostalgic for it because I was really conflicted intellectually and I was really feral and I was really trying to figure out a lot of things and I didn't have any money. I was really poor, kind of bordering on starving sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I had very limited resources, but I did a lot with what I had because I was just like, I'm going to do this. You know, I really put my mind to it. And I just bared through it. And, you know, like some of those old records, they sound like shit because I didn't have any money to mix them or sure. record them on. And they were kind of like the best I could do. But I always felt like this whole thing was going to be a process. And I just stuck with the process. And I don't feel like 
maudlin about it. You know what I mean? But I feel like the whole Chicago thing, like I did some stuff, but I'm not nostalgic about it. And, and I, it's kind of behind me. So, yeah. you know, now, like, I mean, for example, Ken Vandermark and I, I was kind of addicted to him when I was young, you know, and yeah. I could see why he wouldn't want to have too much to do with me. I totally get it. I actually own it, accept it. I can admit it. Right. And now if we see each other, like I saw him on a plane recently and said hi, and he was kind of like, oh, hi. <laughs> and I just laughed. I was like, ah, ah, ah. But, yeah. you know, I made the effort. I said hi to him. I have no hard feelings towards that guy. I mean, yeah. you know, whatever, man. He does his shit. He does, he does a lot of stuff. He's, he's done a lot for the scene. He's yeah. helped a lot of people. He exposed a lot of people to Peter Brotzman. I mean, Peter Brotzman didn't have a fucking rep in the U.S. before, you know, right. John Corbett and Ken Vandermark were basically like, hey, Peter Brotzman's great. Can we get him a gig over here? And they, like, kind of made Brotzman happen in America. So, hey, hats yeah. off to you guys, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm older. I'm like, you know, a lot of my conflicts from my cognitive dissonance when I was young, I've, I've resolved a lot of that stuff because it's called growing up, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's where I am now. So anyways, I had a great time on the West Coast. It was fucking awesome. But 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 getting back, but finding... <laughs> until jo- it wasn't. Well, until it wasn't. <laughs> but my question was, getting, rekindling an interest in free improvisation, Yeah. how much of it was, you know, the music and... and, and what happens when when you're improvising and how much of it was creating new musical relationships with people in that in that context i think it was both and i think that if the quality of the people that i was playing with wasn't so high on the west coast the quality of people the quality of the music yeah well you know the, the people in the music I don't, I don't know if they're interchangeable per se like but let's just say that damon really had his finger damon is really like he's like Peter Kovalt's like his big thing, like sure. hardcore, like improvised music. It right. must be pure. And, you know, like Damon was really into that purest thing of like, I only want to. And the reason why a lot of people think Damon's an asshole is because he doesn't suffer fools in improvised music. He's basically like, if you can't play the shit, I don't take you seriously. And if you're going to get in my face about it, I'm going to say something. You know what I mean? So he's a bit standoffish in the sense that he is a purist and he's like, he doesn't even care if you're, like, technically a player. You better have a fucking awesome concept if you can't play, and then he'll be like, great, you know? Right. Like, I mean, there's plenty of free jazz players that I love who aren't great technicians, but they had such a, you know, like Frank Lowe or somebody. Not, like, the greatest technician, but he had such a great sure. approach and sound, and he picked cool groups and stuff like that. You know, somebody like Damon Smith is is into that because it's it's more like the end result is the most right. important thing. Right, right, right. And I, me too, I think that way. But um, Damon always kind of knew who, like, the burning players were, and he took a lot of chances of, like, I played crazy gigs with, like, Bridget Olher and all these, like, weird people who will never play with me again. Like, they're just like, this fucking guy? Like, what the hell, you know? You know, like, these EAI people, like Axel Derner and stuff. Like, I played gigs with them, and people are like, what? Like, you did? And I'm like, yeah, and I played Dynamics and shit, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I didn't come out... I'm not really that into this like full bore like wall of drum shit. I don't, you know, I, I, this, it, I don't need to do that. Right. I can, but it's not really that interesting to me even at this point. Like being like the most intense bro, that's not really. I, fa- I don't that, really that, care about that anymore. Right. <laughs> Some somebody's got way more balls power than me at this point. Maybe even a woman. So like, it's not about like a pissing contest of like I'm the. You know, I like intensity, but I'm not here to prove that I'm, like, the most intense 
person or whatever. I'm sure. just trying to do some shit. But but back then, yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely was into overkill as a yeah. modus operandi. Was San Francisco or the Bay Area, was it a good base? Was it a good place to yeah. focus your energy and it's be? It's the coolest place I ever lived, honestly. Yeah. Um, I had a cool place to live that was very... Yeah, I had a cool apartment that I split with my wife for eight fifty a month that was right on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland and yeah. it was fucking seventy degrees every day and I could like walk places and I had two, three gigs a week, you know, playing improvised music or doing some rock shit and I had friends and blah blah blah. You know, I mean it was it was real groovy for a while. So why'd you leave that behind? Okay, here's what happened. <laughs> um my my rock things were kind of dwindling. It was kind of like they weren't really that well received ultimately. And sometimes you hit a wall when it's just like you can't take it any further. Like the Lutenbachers thing, we had this awesome group and people were just like not into it. They just like one year. When you say they're not into it, that means that people weren't showing up at the yeah. gigs. Yeah, it's like as the group got more and more crazy and better, people were just like, eh, they just were into something else. You know how it goes. Sometimes yeah. you're the right music at the wrong time. Tell it to Albert Eiler, you know, I mean, whatever. The Village yeah. Concerts, those classic records, dude. There's nobody at those fucking shows. There are like 10 people in the audience. Yeah. You know, whatever. Sometimes you're playing the right music at the wrong time. You can't beat yourself up over it. It's just right. called life. Right. You know, sometimes people don't like your shit. It's fine. So, you know, we had this... We were killing ourselves playing this super complex music. Taking it as far as you could. Yeah, and the people were just like... Crickets. They're just like, yawn. Yeah, crickets. And I was like, it was hurting my feelings. <laughs> it was really like... Yeah. I was like... I was so crestfallen over it. I took it really personally. And I don't do that anymore. I mean, look, there, there is, there, there's a certain amount of devastation that goes along with that that I don't think anyone's immune to. You bust your ass, and if you know you you feel like you know you're that tree falling in the woods, it's it's fucking hard. I mean, I had such a cool crew out there: Henry Kaiser, Willie Winant. Like, there's so many cool people to play with and hang with. I mean, I still. I still love those guys. Like I, I love when I see them. But you know, we had like a scene scene where it was like, hey, you know, pool of like forty people, like bunch of gigs a week. Like, hey, people showed up. Like, well, everyone's drinking. We're having a good time. The music was cool. Like, never seen that combination. You know, like the whole thing. Yeah. It was like kind of a vibe, but nobody really cared about it, documenting it. So it's kind of this thing that just happened. That's kind of like, oh, really? You had a scene out there? Oh, okay. Good for you, you know. Right, <laughs> but I don't really care about it. I mean, that's I made records. I I did stuff, you know. That, so. Actually, that's it's interesting that yeah. there's a there's a period of time. Uh, I mean, all these musicians you just named yeah. these these aren't little kids. These no. are like maestros. Yeah, they're like yeah, awesome. But you know, we did their stuff, and they have the same attitude as me, which is like, yeah, you know, you do it, make the record, play the gig, yeah, do another one, yeah, just keep going, you know, whatever. I mean, obviously, those two guys I named have been around the block. I mean, they're sure. Not, <laughs> they've, they've seen they've seen the rise and the fall and the rise and the yeah, fall. Yeah, they're they're pretty okay with that, you know. Like Henry Kaiser, who is one of my great benefactors, lives in Santa Cruz now, and he's oh, just really? like, yeah, he moved. He was just like, Bay Area's dead. I'm out of here. That's what everyone says. Yeah, this is. Dumb. I have very little experience with the Bay Area. Very little. But I was the people, there the really people that know it well all yeah. say that. Well, by by 2008, seven, I kept coming to New York to play gigs. Like, I would book, I would come asleep, you know, like, one... Who one, were you playing with? Uh, okay, interesting. <laughs> there was a point in 2007, 2008, where I was coming out and playing all these gigs in New York, and I would basically just fly out, borrow a drum kit, and stay for a week and sleep on, like, couches and shit and play all these gigs. At that point, 
I had started playing with Mary Halverson. Mm-hmm. And I actually slept on her couch for a week doing gigs. It's a comfortable would, couch, yes. It's her pad's sweet. Yeah, anyways, and she's in it for for life, so yeah. it's good. Um, Mark Edwards, I'd kind of uh-huh. dug up. He, how did you know? I was I was a fan of Mark's playing on Dark to Themselves, the Cecil record. Yeah. And he had kind of a reputation, but he wasn't really well recorded. I mean, he had this stuff with wear, but I didn't really know that stuff. But I knew him with Cecil, and I was kind of like, oh, Mark Edwards, that guy's a motherfucker. And somehow he made himself known to me, like he wrote me on MySpace or something. And I was like, hey, Mark Edwards from Cecil Taylor's band? He's like, yeah, that's me. You know, he's a real soft-spoken guy. And I was like, you want to play a gig together? He's like, you think you can handle it? And I was like, yeah. He's like, all right, well, if you got the balls, come out. And we did a group with, you know, like two drummers, like us both going fucking ape shit with, you know, whatever guys. I don't, I, I would have to check my notes, but we went through a lot of people yeah. like Darius Jones, uh, Peter Evans, Sabir Mateen, Roy Campbell. You know, I mean, we had all these like burning cats. Some motherfuckers, playing. yeah. Yeah, we, we, with two drummers going ape shit. So it was like real old school, but that music, I mean, people showing up for that. No one showed up. Tumbleweeds. Well, you know, a few people would show up. You're talking like we're playing at like Lit Lounge, Delancey, all these fucking dumps, and we're playing to like 10 people or whatever. Yeah. But the point was to record it all, and then we could release it. And, you know, we, me and Mark did a bunch of records, and we yeah. documented it, and it was cool. So I was playing with Peter Evans. I just, oh, yeah, our, the Peter Evans thing was really funny. I started playing with, with Mary Halverson, and we were doing shit. And, duo. Yes, duo. Yeah. And... Mary goes to me after a gig. He's like, you know what? We I think we played at the Stone, and that was our CD opulence that came out February two thousand seven, something like that. Yeah. Yes. And and afterwards, um, Mary goes like this. She kind of laughs and goes, you know, Weez, you might want to stick around and watch the next band. I was like, who's that? She's like, it's this trumpet player, Peter Evans. I think you're gonna like him. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I stayed, and I like, I was just like, my jaw was on the fucking ground. So I saw, you know, I saw Brandon Seabrook too. That was yeah. the first time I saw Brandon, and um. I mean, Peter Evans just blew me the fuck away, dude. I was just, like, laughing my ass off. And I kind of went up, and I was like, hey, man, I'm Weasel Walter. He's like, oh, yeah, I've heard some of your stuff. I was like, I want to play with you really badly. And he kind of laughed and was like, okay, man, sure, just call me. So that was sort of the beginning of that. So me and me and Mary and Peter had a kind of a working trio for yeah. some years, and we made some records. and Toured? Yeah, we toured. We, we toured a lot, actually, considering what the music was. And that was, was. before you moved here? Yeah. Yeah. So it was that kind of thing where I kept coming here and doing a lot of gigs, and I was kind of like, I looked at my wife, and I was like, uh. Was she, I mean, was she on board with moving here? She was, yeah. I basically, you know, she's just working a job or whatever, and, and basically I was like, uh, can we move to New York? And she's kind of like, yeah, I think that's not a bad idea. She'd had enough of the Bay Area as well? Um, I think she was just game. Yeah. She saw that I was... I mean, she's always taken my career really seriously because it's such a huge fucking <laughs> burden. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like my career is the the monkey on my back, like the, the drive of like, I have to do this stuff. It's like I'm an ideologue or something. Like right. That. I must do this and I and will she's die. <sighs> she's supportive way beyond what she should be. Yes, yeah. she is. Um, but needless to say, she was open to the idea, so we did it. So I came out here and scoped out an apartment in a shitty you know, rehab in Bushwick or whatever, and we moved in. And 
I started working it, it never really got easier because it's New York. You just, yeah, like, it only kinda, gets harder. You just kind of like windmill away forever. Well, you know, I was the new kid in town for a while, which is always fun. And then when you're not the new kid anymore, then you got to like kind of carry your own weight. So, <laughs> you know, for a while I was like, ooh, Weasel Walters here. And I had all these gigs. And then like after sort of Zebulon closed down, I would say by 2015, things were kind of like, like I, you know, I had shit going internationally and I had my peers and stuff like that. Yeah. But, the whole thing of like three gigs a week, like partying all night, was like done by twenty fifteen. Just because of the economic shit, like everyone I know, like a lot of people moved. And was that the first time in your life that the three gigs a week stopped? In your no. adult life of no. of music, no, making. it comes and goes. Yeah, you know, it's like when the scene's burning, you have a lot of gigs. When it's not, you don't. It's okay. It's like a cycle. You know, I, I've kept track of every gig I've played since 1991. That's fucking amazing. It's more than 2,200 gigs. And I have it all on HTML. Like, you know, fucking... That's amazing. All the personnel. Da, da, da. So, you know, I'm I'm almost 2,300 gigs in. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting about keeping track of all the gigs is you can run stats on it. You know, you can actually... You know, at some point I want a spreadsheet where it's all the, the improvisers and, you know, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Hundred, fucking yeah. improvised music gigs, right? And it's such a crazy thing because they're all just dust in the wind to most people. Like, most people just show up to an improv gig and they're like, oh, yeah, cool, later. It's like it never happened, you know? Right. So in a weird way, right. I always thought, like, part of my goal with music was not just me, 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 me. Like, it's all about me. It's about the communities and the, you know, regional things and the scene stuff. And I have it all. I, it's like, it's not just my story. It's a lot of other people's story, too. So... At some point, you know, I want to do something with this stats. Like, I really love William Parker's book, The Fucking Sessionography. Yeah. The thing's so deep. Have you, I mean, have you talked with him at length? I, You know, I've I've only met William a few times, and he was cordial to me. Yeah. Um, You know. I've, I've spoken with him twice in this capacity, with microphones in front of our faces. Mm-hmm. And it is jaw-dropping how much detail he has at his ready. And I'm talking, like... Date of gig, awesome. address of venue, who was on the gig. Like, he's got that shit committed to memory. See, it's the same thing, though, because he knows it's not just his story. It's the story of a whole thrust. Like, to me, the whole 70s loft scene is so underdocumented. To get that book for such a cheap price, are yeah. you fucking kidding me? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's priceless. Because it's not just William Parker's story. It's the story of all these cats, you know, like Arthur Williams and all these guys that are, like, no one's even heard of. Well, you see them around, like... I remember, you know, I used to manage the Stone, and I remember one night I worked a gig. It was it was William Parker had booked the month. Okay, and you could see. Um, I, I, I'm not trying to. I hope I'm not talking out of turn. I got the feeling that he gave gigs to as many people as he could. Mm-hmm. A lot of whom were people who weren't working a lot. A lot mm-hmm. of whom were people that you know, he, like he he's got that catalog in his mind mm-hmm. of who who's done their work, who's put their hours in. And I saw a few people come through who clearly hadn't played gigs, you know, in a while, yeah. whose chops weren't up. Yeah. But William came down every night either to play with them or support them. You that, know, that was a lesson to me in like how you take how you sort of take care of your people. Yeah, you know, it's funny the vision thing. Whenever I run into those people, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, Weasel Walter, like, my reputation precedes me somehow, and I'm kind of like, eh, hi, guys, you know, like, I, I don't take it, I don't take shit like that personally, I just, you know, <sighs> I fit into a lot of different molds, you know, I've done yeah. a lot of, like, straight rock shit, and I've done a lot of free music, and, 
blah, 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 you know, and, and I don't expect to fit into every niche like perfectly. I mean, I've definitely had an extremely Catholic career in terms of the music I do. I mean, most of my, you know, like the last six years I've been playing like total guitar hero noise rock mm-hmm. with Lydia Lunch, you know, all over the world. And people are like, huh, you're, you're a guitar player? <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, I am. I'm one of the best. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> You should see me sometime. If you want to get drenched in my sweat, you should right. come come check it out. But, you know, I, I mean, to me, the whole thing is about interfacing with other people. It's not that I decided to have one thing that I do and I'm going to do it till I'm a legend or some bullshit like that. I like playing with people and I like interfacing with people. Yeah. I mean, whenever people talk to me at gigs, I'm notorious for telling them my life story and, and you know, going way too deep, like, about them and, like the world like very quickly and then just being like i can't even remember who i talked to like hey man you remember when we hung out for three hours that night and talked no (laughs) but i'm sure we did yeah (laughs) you know it sounds like me yeah i have that thing where all white guys like i have to meet them like 30 times before i can remember their faces (laughs) you know nothing against white guys but it's just they all look the same to me until i have a reason to remember who they are you know like yeah Hey, are you Steve or Jeff or John or Chad or, or, Eric or, or Brett. something like that? You know, and I guess I'm a chauvinist in that regard. But, but so you moved here in what 2010? It was late 2009. 2009. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned that at some point you went to Philly because why? <laughs> oh, I was getting crazy ideas around late 2014. Um, uh, I think I was getting. I think I'm guilty of having like a me versus them attitude at yeah. certain points in my life. Yeah, and, um, I relate to that. And I think I was just like, man, the scene's starting to suck. Everyone's disappointing me. I'm going to like move to someplace cheaper and like pioneer it. And I totally failed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just like. You were there for three months? Yeah, like zero. I lived with Jack Wright. Well, no, I lived in Jack Wright's house. I never saw Jack Wright or anyone else for that matter in that house and it was very lonely i lived there for a month and then i moved in with um two of the people who i play with in cellular chaos and they weren't there either so like for three months i was basically just sitting in these kind of sublets going like "Uh, (laughs) what's going on here and i knew people in philadelphia and just uh, i just didn't click and the rent was cheaper but guess what Nothing happened. Right. I mean, you can move anywhere if you want the rent cheaper. Right. You move anywhere you want, but you still one, you still got to make a box somehow. I mean, you can go get a job, but I didn't move to Philadelphia to go work at Whole Foods. I mean, that's right. not, that wasn't my goal in life. Um, I thought maybe in a weird way, I was so crazy, I thought I could lead some exodus, and it totally failed. <laughs> like, no one followed me at all. <laughs> Like zero people. They're like, okay, wheeze, later, you know. Yeah. And then for years it was like, hey man, I thought you moved to Philadelphia. You came back and people were still like <laughs> They're like, Hey man, I thought you were in what Philadelphia. Are you doing here? Yeah, New York really sucks, man. What are you doing here? Playing gigs. Yeah. I live here. Yeah. Anyways, it was interesting. So did you come back to New York with like a a sense of appreciation for it that you didn't have? Well, to- that was a very dark period for me, um, for a lot of reasons that I won't get into. Sure. But but um, I had a lot going on in my life, and it was pretty dark mentally. And um, I came back because I realized my peers are here. You know, yeah. like the people that I really 
relate to and I feel like I have something going with her here and and that's kind of priceless. You can't just, you know, as a 46-year-old male who plays music that not many people like, you can't just show up to most towns and be like, I'm here, let's do something. It doesn't really work that way. I mean, there's not that many people who are like, like, yeah, Weasel Walter, keep doing music. I mean, I have, I have people who root for me, but there's not a huge demand for what I do. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of forcing reality to meet my needs. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I said something to someone like that recently, and I said, yeah, see, I've always been fairly unreasonable. I decided I was going to do something, and I basically did it. And I took my lumps, and I got my glory, and there's literally no demand for it. Like, it's totally self-motivated and self-sustaining. I have help. I have people who help me and have my back and blah, blah, blah. But by the most part, the minute I stop and don't do this, there's not going to be any mourning or any, like, you know, it's going to be like, they can listen to the 200 records I did if they ever get around to it, mm-hmm. and they'll be fine. You know, they'll be like, hey, whatever happened to that Weasel Walter guy? Eh, whatever. Um, you know, so... It feels that way. Yeah, but that's okay. That's called being an artist. It's like... You know, I think when I think people from certain generations, like white people, like middle class people from certain generation were handed this bullshit line that you have to be somebody and you've got to matter. And you know what? You can be somebody and matter, but it ain't gonna be to a million fucking people. It's gonna be like to the people that matter in your The people direct. that are around at the time. Yeah, yeah, like you know, like somebody you talk about William Parker. William Parker is very community oriented and he realizes that the the most important thing is about the direct community of the people that he interacts with and supports and that it's something that it bears its own fruit in the community it's not about the whole world like being like woo 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 like I'm totally over recognition mm-hmm. I really don't give a flying fuck about it I mean if I can get recognition and it can keep food on the table and keep things going that's all well and great but that's not my goal like I'm mm-hmm. not playing any head games with anyone about like moving ahead in the hierarchy I don't give a shit. Some people like me. Some people hate me. Most people don't care or know that I exist. It's fine. I'm like over it. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. As long as I can keep doing shit I want to do, you know, it's fine. Um, you know, it's not always easy, but that's life, right? You make your choices. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all have to, you know, if we're we're not independently wealthy, we all have to make some kind of compromise at some point, you know, to get a dollar. Yeah, it's just the way it goes. It's called capitalism. But do you? <laughs> I mean, on a regular. basis... I'm just not into fucking people over, so that's where I draw the line. Right. I mean, on a regular basis, I beat the fuck out of myself because I feel like I make more sacrifice than I do. Like I spend more time doing things that were meant to be the thing that pushes you know wind into my creative sail. Where you know, I'm like I'm doing this fucking thing all the time. The creative sail is just you know completely out of the picture. That's how it works. I mean, I think it's about coming to peace with it. I mean, yeah. I do more admin than I do practicing. I'll yeah. tell you that. Admin for your label or for some fucking thing to make a for few example, bucks? For example, yeah. you know, like, I mean, I don't mind doing admin, but I, and I'm but motivated. It's still, but it's still your label, so that's still... Well, you know, the thing is, it's not like I'm practicing an hour a day or some shit. I mean, I haven't touched a drum kit in almost a month at this point because so funny there's been you say no reason. I haven't played the clarinet in over three weeks. Well, I mean, it happens. You know, my chops and my concept are good enough that... I have a stick routine that I can do three nights in a row, and then I'm, like, basically back. If right. I don't do it, I'm not back. But if I do it, like, if I have the discipline, I'm like, okay, I got a gig. Like, I got a gig with Luke Stewart and Michael Foster on the 20th. That'll be sick. 
I, yeah, and I yeah. want to play good. So the thing is, I got to go in like I got to get my root because I don't have a practice space or anything. So I have to. I know I have to do the shit on the pads like the forty-five minute routine at least three nights before, and then I'll be burning. But if I don't do it, I'll be like, oh man, this shit's like too slow and blah blah blah. So it, that's called pragmatism. It's like the dream of like being some asshole who sits in a practice space, like really like burning his chops on the drums five hours a day. It's not realistic for me. Right. I mean, good bully on whoever does that, you know, but like, that's not as a 46 year old guy with no money. I mean, it's just not really practical. Right. (laughs) So, you know, I have to keep my goals in mind, which are like, okay, let's say I have such and such a gig. And if I want to play at a certain level, I literally know at this point how much work I have to put into it up front. Is that, is that comforting? Yes. Yeah. I imagine so. Because it's not such a big onus of like, before I realized that was the equation, I would show up to gigs and not people would be like, oh, that was cool. And I was like, but I didn't think it was cool. And I'd be really hard on myself because I wasn't where I wanted to be. But the thing is, you got to solve your own fucking problems. Yeah. Because nobody's going to do it for you, right? I've been one of the whiniest bitches in the world, like on and off my whole fucking life. Like, trust me, people who know me laugh about it, like wah wah weasel's coming, you know, he's going to complain about how hard it is that no one likes free jazz or whatever, you know, I'm putting a placeholder in there. I mean, I've spent plenty of periods of my life like whining and kind of bitching about things that I thought were out of my control. And then I realized, well, at certain point, you know, you got to man up and look at the environment. Like there are limitations to our environment, our resources, our time, our ability, blah, blah, blah. And I, and, and I feel really good about just finding the nexus of like, well, I'm still ambitious. There's still things I want to do, but I'm not going to like cry about it because I can't automatically achieve what I want to achieve. It's yeah. it's about work and persistence and discipline and um, growth and and trying to be a human being. And you know, like that's what I found at 46. Yeah. You know, I'm not like the burning nihilist that I've always been, where it's like fuck anyone who's not like me. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. So I'm I, I think I'm a lot more human now. And so. Given everything we've just talked about, yeah. does the reinvigoration of flying Lüttenbachers is that representative at all of a new realization of of maturity and self? Jeremiah, I think you might be able to say that. I yeah. haven't thought about it, so I don't have a speech prepared. Sure, but I do think that when I quit doing that band, I felt very defeated and I felt very angry and bitter, and um, it did. You know, I did follow it up instantaneously with a ton of activity that just wasn't really focused in that direction. And I did a lot of cool shit. I was in Behold the Octopus. I mean, that was like insane shitting a watermelon. Yeah, yeah, it was like we practiced for two years before we played a gig. Totally insane. So, you know, I did a lot of stuff. I never stopped doing as much stuff as I could do. I just put my attention to a different thing. But then when it finally came time to really look at the concept and there was a demand for it, I was like, well, one, I want to do this because it's it's not cynical for me. Like, I'm not just going to be like, people want it, fine, I'll give it to them, but they're going to pay. It's not cynical. It's more like, if I'm going to do the Flying Lutenbachers again, it's got to be the Flying Lutenbachers. It's got to matter. I got to be able to defend it as like, well, it's what I say it is. It's good. It's solid. It has the aesthetics. It's the quality, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I had to do it. I had to have the right people. Um... And I had to have the motivation. And the thing is, is that, you know, I've found the motivation and, you know, it's not exactly the most diverse group of 
you mean in terms of of contemporary definition of yeah i mean it's right. it's not you know it's it's a pretty pretty sissish white maleish kind of Man, group but i know uh, <laughs> I, I did i did all that someone and someone, i i love diversity and i love having not that as a group but you know what I had to have these people in the group. I literally well, didn't have point. any choice. I mean, that's I, the point. It's yeah. like it's the people, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I I know what you mean, and like I I, don't, I wouldn't beat myself up too much. But these these guys, Tim, Brandon, yeah. Matt, yeah, these are important people. Well, I go way back with them. We've done a lot of stuff, and there is a there is a homogeneity in the sense that we're all in a similar age bracket. We're all in a similar experience bracket. We have a similar taste thing. They kind of get my aesthetic. They get the joke. They get the the sort of dramatic overtones of it and the yeah. meta text. And they're ringers. They can kind of play anything. They're all motherfuckers, yeah. So it's just like that kind of thing where I did rack my brain a little bit. And I was kind of like, do I, in 2018, 19, do I want to like come out and pretty much have this like frat boy band of free jazz. And I was kind of like, you know what? <laughs> Fuck it. Let's just do this. Who cares? You know, let's have a good time and like high five each other on stage and drink beers and play harmonic jazz and what? It's all good. you know. <laughs> so I, I just let it go. I was just like, well, that's my band. If anyone's going to bust my balls, it's like, well, I mean, who do I... I work with Lydia Lunch, Admiral Gray, Mary Halverson, Darius Jones. Uh, you know, I mean, I have an endless list of... Mark right. Edwards. Like, I have an endless list of people that I work with who are not fitting in the mold of straightish white guys, you know? So it's just like, I don't feel like I have to defend myself No, of course not. That. No, 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 no. I wasn't asking you to. I mean, I feel like... I'm asking myself to defend it. <laughs> I, I'm, I just, I feel like... I feel like resurrecting this band yeah. with solid cats mm-hmm. feels to me knowing very little about anything like a step like a positive step it is and you know it's been really well received and there is a little bit of that thing of like well if i called this something else no one would care but if i call it the flying loot markers magically people care but you know what so what it's always been my band it's always been what i decided to do it's true to form i mean it's we're playing 20, 20th century modernism, punk, yeah. jazz. It's it's the Flying Lutenmachers. The album's out in a month. It's awesome. Or like a month and a half. It's yeah. great. It's totally hilarious. It's overkill. It's it's a party, you know, it's party punk harmonic band. I mean, it's, yeah, it's fun. Right on. Did we miss anything? Uh I don't know. I mean, the Flying Lutenbachers record coming out in March is kind of important. So you're putting it out? I'll explode? Yeah. I, I have a licensing deal in Europe to do a double LP for it, which yeah. is awesome, because I never, I can't afford to do that. I know everyone wants vinyl and blah, blah, blah. Ugh. I'm not really not into that whole thing. But to me, the attitude is like, well, it can't hurt. And, you know, a bunch of European guys came forward and they're like, we want to do it. And I kind of chose the guy who I thought was more legit. And... um so that'll come out, and then we're going to tour Europe in April, and we're playing pretty select dates in America. We can't really do like door gigs. And no, shit. no, I mean, no, 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 no. The Europe gigs are cool. Yeah, no, the response has been crazy. I mean, we got to yeah. go back again in 2019 because there's so many people that wanted to book it's us. Amazing. We didn't have time. Well, but we we paid some dues in Europe. I mean, we did sure. we did four tours over there, like month long tours, you know, back in the day. So right, no, but but. Uh, to bring something back 
you know, if you're not entirely sure that's a thing to do, and then to get that kind of response, I have to imagine. Well, is... look, you know, it's a little weird being like having some like legacy type cred because I didn't. That was never my plan, right? And um, there is that weird thing that I said before, where it's like, well, if I call this some other band name, no one's going to care. But if I call it Flying Loot Markers, they pay, pay attention. But I'm actually not bitter about it because I fought for it. Yeah. It's mine. Yeah. I did it, and I'm going to present cool shit, and it's going to be gnarly and awesome and high quality and fun and crazy, and that's what it's supposed to be. And if people get off on it, then I can use it, you know, like I've already thought of expanding the band. Like, you know, I, I you know, there's like, sometimes people can't make the gigs because they're like busy guys. They're like ringers. And we, you know, we're talking about doing some gigs this spring, and I'm talking about like, hmm, Maybe Wendy Eisenberg could sit in for she's fucking Brandon monster. Seabrook. Well, she's cool and she can play, and why not give her a chance? You know, like why she's not? Cool as shit. Sorry, Wendy, if you're listening to this, uh, I'm I'm, I'm going to call you soon. No, everybody, <laughs> everybody should be calling Wendy Eisenberg. Well, she's a cool. She's cool and she's and, hilarious. Yeah. She asks questions about everything. Well, she's and she a plays her ass off. Deep weirdo, and she cares about music. Yeah. And my whole thing is now like, hmm. Who can I give a chance to? Because I'm in a position to give somebody a chance. Not that she needs a chance. No, I know you mean. I mean, she's got plenty of people batting for her. But at the same time, we totally click and we kind of get each other's sense of humor. And we're both crazy nuts. And it'd be like, you know, I mean, it's not a done deal. I'm sort of like, this is a little gossipy. But I was kind of like thinking like, who who could I get to sit in? And I was like, I bet Wendy would like to do this gig because it would be really awesome. You know? Yeah, so, sure you know, it's stuff like that. That's yeah. like I'm thinking. I want the Lutenbachers to be kind of a modular group. I do want to kind of expand it and do shit. Um, you know, part of the thing that the four of us who are in the group are really influenced by is like electric, harmonic, you know, yeah. kind of punk jazz stuff. And at the same time, you know, I really want to write bigger pieces that incorporate more people under the Flying Lutenbachers. You know, the Flying Lutenbachers thing has always been like whatever I say it is. But it's always been sort of geared towards dissonant, angular, yeah. deconstruction kind of stuff. So I don't know. I want to use it as, as an, uh, uh, a blanket for a lot of different musicians and having sort of a stable bass group is one idea and then I can augment it with other people. So, you know, it's cool. That's good. It's good. It took me a while to figure out that that's what it could be because I'm yeah. a formalist and I'm like, oh, it can't be that. It can't be that. And I'm like, yeah, it can. <laughs> that's a relief. I'm a Taurus, bro. You Wait, know, what's your I'm birthday? Like May 18th. I'm born May 4th. Rick Wakeman and I share a birthday, but I'm I not share a birthday about with uh, both Randy Travis <sighs> and Ron Carter. Well, one's hip, one's And not. Lance Bass from NSYNC. That's not cool. But <laughs> that's not your fault. And Rocco Sofredi. I share a birthday with Rocco Sofredi. <laughs> I've never seen his work, but I've heard about it's it. It's horrifying. I'm sure it is. Uh, not my cup of joe. No. But hey. But I'm I'm glad you came over. Thanks. I appreciate you talking. Hey, do you have any questions? Do you have one, any like one last question for me? It could be meta, like anything. I, don't I mean, think so. Uh, I just feel like when you called me, you know, I've followed your your podcast, yeah. and I think there's so it's a lot of stuff. Well. I think you're filling in a lot of blanks because, you know, I was talking earlier about how when I was finding out about new music, I went to the library and read books. Those books kind of aren't being written in the same way. Like, there's no scene overview. Right. You know, like, when I did the whole West Coast thing, there's no overview of that scene. It's basically like it didn't even happen. There's well, some records. You and... said that a second ago, and it kind of bugged me out to think about that. 
It's true. I mean, I made yeah. s- some records and did what I could, but no one thinks that there was a scene or anything. Right. People are like, what? You had like a improv scene there? And it was like, yeah, it was kind of burning, kind of killing you, actually. <laughs> right. But um, that's the thing is I, I think the podcasts are really important, and I'm not trying to blow hot air up your ass, but I have followed them because I think that there's so many, there is a convergence of great mu- musicians in New York right now that are not being represented by the media. Absolutely. Like the Village Voice ain't, you it's know, done. they, it's they like throw, be- yeah, exactly, it's done. It's gone. Yeah, but that was a thing, right? Yeah, no one's going to do it for us. Well, I just got to say, like, I'm glad you do it because, you know, I listen to these things and I listen to a lot of musicians I even know. Yeah. And I find out things about them I had no fucking clue about, and I'm I'm like gobsmacked it's sometimes. Really <laughs> yeah. Or or Brandon Seabrook or yeah. a lot of people. You know, a lot of people have really deep. You know, we know so many psychopathic people that are so deep into this like thing, and we really everyone takes for granted all the insanity of the journey. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I mean, I haven't even talked about one <laughs> one hundredth of what the hell sure. has gone down. But so what? I There's mean, only so much we can do. Well, and also, everyone has a life, you know, not just musicians. Everyone has, like, a a crazy, long, deep story, and doesn't matter. I mean, it's that's the point of music, is you structuralize these little moments because you have the impetus to do it. You're like, this is what I do now, and here's this thing, and everyone's going to ignore it, but maybe, like, a hundred people listen to it, and that's the history of art. No, one thing it matters, you know? Uh, You know... I'm going to go back to this idea that I think, you know, what I do is futile. And I don't think that's a bad thing because what most people do is futile. It's just, we're humans. We just chase our tails and run around in circles. Yeah, we just do shit. And it's insane. And in a hundred years, will it all, any of it matter? It will because there are, you know, the history of of the social consciousness is, is a thrust of people agreeing with things and the only way you get these these thrusts is by putting something into that thrust and and directing it towards something, whether it's fascism or, you know, something more useful like culturally or something like that. People are, most people are predestined to 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 conform with these thrusts through history, socially, politically, blah blah blah, and um. I don't know. I'm just doing my job. I'm like pissing in the water a little. You know, when you drink a glass of water, you get a little weasel's piss in there. I don't know. Maybe that's not a good metaphor, but maybe that's it. I think it's okay. Okay. Thanks for talking, man. Yep. All right. How do we do? That was my conversation with Weasel Walter. I think it, uh, I think we, 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 we got into some good stuff, and I hope that you enjoyed that. Like I said at the top of the show... Weasel's a good dude, and um, I'm, I'm I'm glad to have finally had this conversation. It was a uh, it, w- it was a good one. Check out the new Flying Littenbacher's record when it comes out. It's coming out in just a couple weeks. If you're in or around Western Europe, check them out on tour in April. Go to nowave.pair.com to find out more about Weasel. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. Big 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 archive. And that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye.